Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September 18th, 2015. This is episode 1647 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It is time for the Monster Show of the Week. Your calls are actually your questions sent by email. For the expert counsel, the way you ask a question to the expert counsel is you send me an email. You send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And uh, in the subject line, you put TSPC expert, TSPC space expert, and then ask your question right up front. One line, two lines, that's it, question mark, and then hit the return key, and if you think you need a bunch of details, put them down there. That will help me scan things much faster and help the expert know what you're actually asking, because sometimes when you do it the other way around, it's not really clear what the question is. So that's the, that's me helping you to get your questions answered and through the screening process. Before we get to your questions for this week, and we have some great ones, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is a ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case? They've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning? Whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators? Got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains, That's why they call them SawTac, and when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from SawTac, get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up SawTac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the sawtooth wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year, 1647. Um, I have three for you today on TSP Wiki from Alex Shrug. The first one is, almost every building in Santiago, Chile collapses, yellow fever hits the new world, and England bans Christmas. I'm going to, uh, to do England bans Christmas because I have an interesting... Thought on that, uh, but real quick, I'll tell you that the Santiago Santiago Chile had an 8.5 magnitude earthquake this particular year. 
Uh, disasters are nothing new. And yellow fever killed a whole lot of people. Uh, it came into Barbados first. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I, I come off as being anti-vaccine. There's some info in there about the vaccine created for yellow fever. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm anti-vaccination practices, the way that things are done now with our children. I'm anti-giving a child eight courses of injections before they're two years of age. I don't think that makes sense. I think it puts them at risk. But uh, the yellow fever vaccine, trust me, when I was in Panama and being deployed into Honduras where yellow fever still happens, and they said, we're going to give you a yellow fever vaccine, I said, Please do. Anyway, but England bans Christmas. What's up with that? Okay, the dates of various events in history have come into question. In particular, the birth date of Jesus is December 25th. The English Puritans believe that Christmas is a holiday invented by the Pope. There is also a lot of unseemly festive behavior associated with the holiday. So the Parliament passes a law banning the holiday this year. Apparently, this law is not very popular with the rank and file. People like Christmas. The Easter Bunny breathes a sigh of relief. He was next. My take by Alex Shrug. After one sees the New Orleans Mardi Gras, one can imagine how religious holidays might lose their connection with the original meaning of the holiday. Certainly this has happened with Christmas. Regardless of the actual date of the birth of Jesus, it seems perfectly reasonable to celebrate his birthday since he's a significant figure in Christianity and in history as, as a whole. Even Judaism has been affected by the holiday. Hanukkah is a mirror Ju minor Jewish holiday that has become popular only because it's observed around December. Yet Hanukkah has as much to do with Christmas as Cinco de Mayo does. That is, if Cinco de Mayo occurred on December, in December, you can bet the holiday would take on some festive character of Christmas. Christmas is a massively influential, yet if the... If, Christmas is massively influential, yet if the birth of Jesus is mentioned at all, it is usually as a side point. It is a serious holiday, but people want Christmas to remain a fun festival. The Christians shouldn't feel too discouraged. Judaism has a similar problem with Jews who don't take uh, serious Jewish holidays seriously anymore either. Um, here's my take by this. Well, first of all, um, there are people that say Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus. For you, that's fine. That's fine. We're, we're back to our discussion yesterday, right? What you want to do in your life and how you want to observe a specific date is your business. You have no right to impose your will on others to recognize what you're doing, nor does anybody else have any right to impose on you your right to express yourself. Um, for all the talk of a war on Christmas because somebody at the store told you happy holidays, if it really bothers you that much, just say, and Merry Christmas to you too. And I bet you they don't give a damn I've never seen anybody actually get upset because somebody said the word Christmas to them. But here's how I feel about Christmas today. It, it's now actually two holidays. It really is. It is a religious holiday for those that share the Christian faith. And it is a secular holiday that America has embraced and made its own in a way that I don't think any other nation ever really has. I don't think anybody has made Christmas what it really is here from a secular standpoint. Now, there's a lot of consumerism and BS around it as well, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the way we actually treat each other around Christmas, the way we should treat each other all year round. The spirit of giving. Giving being way more important than reception. Making sure family's together no matter what. Spending time with each other. And taking a freaking break. I'm actually very pleased to see Christmas celebrated in both ways. Because if it was only celebrated as a religious holiday, trust me, it would be celebrated less as a religious holiday. 
My Take by Jack Spierko. To read the other stories, just go to TSP Wiki, look up the year 1647, tspwiki.com, the Survival, Self-Sufficiency, and Liberty Wiki with a historical twist, thanks to Alex. And uh, you can be a contributor there. You can. Uh, we need you. It is the encyclopedia of all things self-sufficiency, and you probably know something and can help make it better. And even if you don't think you know how to do it, we have videos to show you how to do it. Just go to tspwiki.com. It's like Wikipedia without all the Nazis running the damn thing. You can actually make an edit there with nobody taking your head off. How awesome is that? All right. Uh, next up, real quick, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. It's how I for pay for doing all of this. It really is. It's how I build the, the show for you, how I build the videos for you, how I do all the things I do. It, it, it's all because the Member's Brigade is successful, and you'll get your money back if you take advantage of the discounts. So just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members today. By now, everybody should know there's a service discount for certain people. If you're one of those people, apply for it. Listen to another episode so I can get right into today's show because I want to get um, right into our first question of the day now. This is from Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. Uh, this comes from James. James says, Bees just moved into my empty hive. Should I feed them all winter or are they doomed? Yeah, this is September and a swarm of bees showed up to a vacant hive and took residence. Now there's no stuff in there for them. Michael, what, what do we do? Can this be saved? Can those bees become... Uh, uh, a colony for James, or is it just too late in the year, and are they doomed? James, a swarm in May is worth a load of hay. Boy, you haven't got that any more correct, because if you're going to feed your bees, you want to feed brand new swarms in the springtime so they'll grow. James had a bee colony move into an empty hive in September, and he wants to know if it's worth his time to feed the bees over winter. September swarms is for building in the storm. I would marry a swarm to establish hive, using the last 30 days of the bee's life to help them store to the end of the year with honey flow, so that hive will make it without feeding costs in the winter. This will also help you with heat, uh, that will keep the hive warmer in around 40 degree temperatures when the temperatures drop to the zero degrees or lower. The bees will die off, keeping the colony warm, but you won't have lots of winter kill off, helping the hive make it over winter. The hive is so full in the springtime, good wintering for this? Man, more than likely you can split, split that hive and make a new one. Having a swarm for a year or two, that will survive better. How you marry hives? First you're going to soak newspaper with three sheets in a tub of water with a sugar mix of 50-50. Let the newspaper sit for a full hour. This will not only make the paper wet, but gets the sugar in the paper for the bees to chew on. Then go to the strongest hive, lift the lid and the inner cover, and place the three sheets of newspaper as if it was the cover. Now let it. Uh, <clears throat> now take the late starting swarm of bees in the box and remove the whole box off the noose of its bottom board and place it on top of the newspaper, the stronger hive. Make sure the new swarm of bees is. Uh, Isolated, that the bees out of the out of the little box cannot get out, that the wet newspaper will be eaten by both colonies in about three to five days, allowing the the scent of the queen to mix to both parties, and allowing the weaker hive to migrate into the larger hive, building the colony, and that's marrying. Now that the bees have gotten you through, uh, you lift the swarm hive box off, remove the paper, and now the bees have merged in the hive, making it a working population. Now, uh, there's no loss, no foul, and that you do have to spend a little money on a swarm to keep it going. You could, 
But uh, if it makes it over the winter, because you've added more population to it, you just saved a beehive by marrying them together. And you can always split that hive next year, but that's only if they make it. So you want to populate hives strongly for the winter time. So marrying a late swarm to a hive by killing the queen and using these marrying procedures can make weaker hives stronger to last over winter. James said it is his only hive. And well, by the way it reads, you can tell if he wants to make this work. And he's going to feed the bees over the winter. So James, if you're going to do that, make a lots of fondant cake. Uh, JC Honeybees has a video on YouTube that's like one of the better fondant cakes I've ever seen. Uh, make sure that once you get lots of fondant in there, uh, get yourself a sleeping bag. Salvation Army, Goodwill, something you don't mind getting tore up from the winter. And wrap that beehive, trying to keep the hive temperatures on the inside around 40 degrees. Get yourself a thermal gun. Check that hive. Make sure that they're not higher than 40 degrees because you want to keep the bees warm so they'll eat and live. But you don't want it too hot to where they will eat all their honey surplus and be active in the hive without being able to get out to use the restroom or to populate. So you can feed them lots of fondant cake over the winter, hoping that they'll make it for the four months, and see if you can make that colony bees go. Now for more advanced beekeepers, we want to use a five-frame nuke box and go with Increased Essentials by Lawrence J. Connor. You should move the bees into a five-frame nuke. The frame should be all cat brood. When they hatch, you'll have six pounds of bees for the hive. If you do this uh, twice before the winter time, you've almost tripled your colony within a two-month time period. Uh, so doing that and popping brood will make that uh, little weak swarm big before the end of the year. You need to stack uh, another five-frame nuke box on top of it, placing about five uh, pound, five, or three pounds of fondant cake, and then five medium-sized frames of capped honey on top. Uh, the bees will eat the fondant before they get to the honey surplus on top because now you've got two deep nuke boxes, the bottom one full of cat brood, and the second one with fondant cake and medium honey. This will last you for four months without you really having to check the bees. So you're going to have a queen bee with the miniature swarm and a nuke box, just like a populated nuke box with brood popping. And if you do that twice before the end of the year, you've made that... Uh, system to almost you know nine pounds of bees, which is going to be around thirty thousand bees, which is a good colony start. And then with all the extra fondant and honey, you won't have to check them, and it'll, it'll go pretty good. So for the next sixty days, the bees will hatch, giving you a place for the bees to clean and the queen to start laying in old brood chambers. And you'll increase the size of the colony by almost twice the amount in thirty days. Uh, Wrap the double nook for the winter and uh, spring feed heavy with liquid feed and move the bees into a larger deep like you would a super nook. nook. That way you have a deep that's like fully populated and ready to go from this. This will limit the feed needed and uh, you'll be able to make new hives for the new year with very low cost. Uh, this is a good tip to have. And make sure that you have enough beehives or friends that have beehives that can uh, supplement you with cat brood uh, to pull out because you're going to be pulling brood out that some of these hives will be needing for their spring build because, uh, you know, they get what they call uh, frost lock and 
the bees won't hatch because it's too cold, but it's not cold enough to kill the larva, and the larva can eat with inside the chambers for a period of time. So if you have bee colonies that you can pull brood from, using this uh, system from Lawrence J- John Connor called Increased Essentials is a good way of a more advanced beekeeper to uh, popularize on smaller colonies to bring them into the new year. Uh, spring brings splits and swarms at the end of the year. You need to pinch off queens and make sure your hives are a large population for warmth for winter kill-off. Uh, take the time to put your hives on a scale. Do this three or four times a year. Check the weight. This will help you see if you have honey or if you're losing your bees to swarming. Uh, these are some of the best tips I can give you at this point in time. Um, new beekeeper, and you want to save some bees, you know, you can give it a try. It's going to give you an investment, and it's a learning experience, man, that you're not going to know what kind of keeper you are unless you try things. I am the bee whisperer telling you to work with beekeepers that you respect and buy your honey locally. If you don't respect the beekeeper, move on. It's only going to make us have better beekeepers. Buy your uh, products from Cottage Industries and help help your fellow man. This is how we're only going to get better. Be sure to log in and support the first module on the beekeeping design course on the Perma Ethos site. We're starting at the lowest end, which is the beginning levels for law and allergic reactions in history, and we will be moving into harder courses as we go along with the with the modules. You're looking around 40 hours of course, uh, you know, curriculum. So, you know, a beekeeper is about $15 an hour. So if you, you know, times that by 40 hours, you're looking at about $600 that the investment is on this. And we're going to give them to you out in modules so you can take what you want. But we really want you to try to grab this first module and help support us because, if we don't get uh, enough funding, we won't be able to carry on on the modules. It'll just take longer for us to produce them with, uh, without the type of funding needed. So help us get out there and uh, be a better beekeeper and a better human. Great stuff from Michael Jordan. And now that it's been passed by the Supreme Court, it's legal to marry one bee swarm to another beehive. Da-dum-bum. Not very good. I know, but... I just had to say it. Anyway, um, that's another example of, you know, sometimes questions come in for expert council members. I'm like, I could answer that. Maybe they'll have a different take or some different views or whatever. But most of the questions that come in for Michael Jordan as a noob beekeeper myself, I don't know. I mean, I don't. we don't get simple bee questions. We get these complex things like this. So it's great to have a guy like Michael. Check out the uh, the new video for the BDC that, that, that's coming out. Basically, it's like an intro course. It's very inexpensive. Great place to start with bees and decide whether or not bees really are right for you. That's a permit ethos. I'll have a link in the show notes today where you can learn more about that. All right, next up we have a question for financial guru extraordinaire, a go-go, John Pugliano. Uh, it's And he actually wants my opinion on this, too, so I'll give it after I, we listen to John's. But it says, isn't the whole movement to increase the minimum wage really another way for government to increase inflation without having to officially increase the interest rate? This seems like a really insidious way to devalue currency by a large percentage and hide it in the guise of making, quote, the lives of the people better at the bottom of the economic chain. In reality, they're just making us increase prices on everything, and this is from Scott. John, what say you on Scott's question? Hi, Scott. Thanks for your question. Let me start off by saying that I agree with your cynicism 
about politicians and when they uh, provide us with, quote, benefits like the Affordable Care Act or minimum wage or that they're going to subsidize solar energy or or that they're going to discourage smokers by raising taxes on cigarettes. I mean, you know, whatever comes out of their mouth, I never believe that it's for our benefit, nor do I think that they think it's for our benefit. You can just tell by the statements they make that everything they say is scripted, it's based on polling data, it's based on sound bites. Their entire effort is to simply get reelected so that they can maintain and consolidate their power. So I share your cynicism on that side of it. Uh, do I think that specifically the minimum wage is done in an attempt to increase the inflation rate or devaluate the dollar? Well, no, I really don't. Now, I'm not disagreeing with you that increasing the minimum wage doesn't promote inflation. I'm just saying that I don't think that's their intent because they have such better ways to do it. Anytime the government spends any money or intervenes in the economy in any ways, whether directly through cash payments or transfers or whether it's creating legislation, it always devaluates the dollar. That's just collateral damage. So increasing the minimum wage Yes, it will devaluate the dollar, but is that one of their purposes? No. No, they just want to buy votes. They just want to pander. You see, when they really want to devaluate the currency, they have so many other buttons and levers to push to do it that they don't, wouldn't have to fool around with the minimum wage. You know, for example, there's less than 2 million people that earn the minimum wage. It's really an extremely small percentage of the overall U.S. economy and the U.S. workforce. I mean, there's 138 million households that file taxes. Now, I know not everybody that files a tax return is working. Some people are retired. Some people are unemployed, and they're trying to, to get other benefits through it. So not everybody is actually employed. But that gives you an idea of the general U.S. adults, you know, demographic population. So you have 138 million tax filers, and, and that's a household filing. You know, many of them are filing joint returns as husband and wife. And so when you, when you look at that segment of the economy and you say, well, gee, only 2 million people, in fact, probably more like 1.6 million people, it's really a trivial amount. So if their intent was to specifically devaluate the currency, I mean, why fool with less than 2 million people? You've got 46 million people receiving food stamps. You could just increase the allotment of food stamps, and that would have a bigger increase on inflation than fooling with the minimum wage. Just to drill down the numbers a little more, I mean, think about it. Just say that there's 2 million people receiving the minimum wage. When the Federal Reserve was running their quantitative easing program, and this just stopped October of 2014, so it wasn't that long ago, they were pumping $85 billion a month into debt instruments in the U.S. economy. Now, about half of that went to uh, U.S. government debt, and the other half of it went to mortgage debt. But in any case, it was $85 billion a month that was artificially being pumped in to the U.S. economy via the Federal Reserve that was just creating money out of thin air. Just one month of quantitative easing, if that would have been given and distributed to all the people that are on minimum wage, each person would have received over $42,000. That'd be a one-time payment of over $42,000 to the 2 million people that are making minimum wage. So you can see that when the politicians want to devaluate the currency, they're going to do it through quantitative easing programs, direct money transfers, excess printing of money, you know, whatever accommodative measures the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve want to do. They're not going to fool with raising the minimum wage by, you know, 75 cents or something to devaluate the dollar. They've got so many other tools at their disposal, they wouldn't fool with that. 
So to directly answer your question, no, I don't think the minimum wage has anything to do with devaluating the currency. To me, the bigger question in all this is how this affects you as a restaurant owner. Because even if you're successful in raising your prices to your consumers so that you can cover the added expense of minimum wage increases or Affordable Care Act or whatever it is, we know from economics, every time you raise prices, you lose gross sales. Because on the margins, there's always that one customer that can't afford the extra dollar. And so they either don't come into your restaurant or they don't order a full entree or they skip dessert. And the higher and higher your prices go, the smaller number of clientele you can attract to your restaurant. So ultimately, that's bad news for you because it not only means decreasing profit potential, but it means at some point you would have to raise your prices high enough to where you would lose enough customers so that you not only are not profitable, but you would go out of business. So as a business owner, you need to continually be innovating to maintain your current profit margin just to keep up with all the government intervention. So that may mean that you reduce payroll by investing in automation and getting rid of some employees. It may mean that you buy some additional software that helps you adjust and manage your inventory so that you can have less spoilage and, and turn your inventory quicker. It may mean finding ways to, to use less utilities, you know, heating or cooling your building or the uh, natural gas that you purchase to run the stoves and the ovens, you know, finding ways to reduce the amount of that that you use. I'm obviously not familiar with your industry, so I don't know all the ways that you can find ways to make your operation more efficient, but that's your challenge as a small business owner because the bottom line is is that government regulations aren't going to get any laxer. And so if you want to maintain your profits and stay in business, you're going to have to find ways to run your restaurants that are more efficient, more productive, and leaner. That's just the reality of the economic situation that we find ourselves in. So, Scott, I know that's not easy. Good luck with that. For those in the TSP audience that would like more information about my market commentary or my general thoughts on wealth building principles, please check out my Wealth Steading podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano. Yeah, let's talk about a few numbers here, adding on to this and my thoughts about it. What I think is actually going on a lot of times when the government's pushing for this, uh, with the solidarity of all these government workers and government union workers, because that's a little funny, isn't it? None of those guys make minimum wage. I'll tell you something that John may or may not know, but he certainly didn't bring up here in a bit. But let's talk about when you hear this pandering bullshit. Um, when you look at the total number of hourly paid employees in, in this country, 4.3%, 4.3%, you can check this out, it's a government statistic, make minimum wage or less, they say. Now, how, who makes less than minimum wage? You can't make less than minimum wage. It's the federal minimum. There's a few loopholes here and there, but generally they're talking about service industry workers like waiters and waitresses and bartenders all of whom tend to make far more than minimum wage if they work at a place that doesn't suck and if they're good at their jobs. Uh, my son makes $2 and something cents an hour as a bartender, but he brings home well over $30,000 a year. Now, they would say, well, he's paid under minimum wage, but he's not earning under minimum wage. So it's even a little bit less than that. Let's call it 4%. Let's say 4% of, of workers make minimum wage. Now, what percent of those workers are full-time employees making minimum wage? I think you'd find the number dramatically low. What percentage of those 4% of Americans are under the age of 18 or under 21, kids working part-time, seasonal work, etc.? 
a, a significant number. There's kids working all over the place around here at restaurants and things like that. You know, kids that are 16, 17, 18 years old working at McDonald's, Burger King, Chick-fil-A, etc. Oh, on that note, Chick-fil-A right now, Chick-fil-A down the road from me, Lake Worth, Texas, is hiring people with no experience at $10.50 an hour. Federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour, and in Texas we don't have any kind of state-based minimum wage. So if a 16-year-old can go down to Chick-fil-A and get $10.50 an hour, why is the person at McDonald's bitching instead of going over to Chick-fil-A and getting a job? Why? Because Chick-fil-A hires the best employees you can get that are willing to work in a sector that's not the greatest sector to work in. And all you have to do is go down here and order a Big Mac and then walk across the street and buy a crispy chicken sandwich to see the difference. And what the, what the apologists for raising the minimum wage would say is, they work harder at Chick-fil-A because they're paid better. And what I would tell you is, they're paid better because they do a better job. Because Chick-fil-A knows by paying significantly more than McDonald's, who, by the way, is paying $8.50 an hour, just saying. Um, <laughs> Chick-fil-A knows by paying substantially more, more than 20% more, than the competing restaurants across the street from them, like Arby's and McDonald's, that every kid that wants a good job in that, that says, I'm willing to flip burgers, I'm willing to turn uh, chicken breasts, whatever, says, I'm going to go apply with Chick-fil-A. To all of them apply there. And Chick-fil-A can then pick the best candidates. Not the most experienced, but the people with the work ethic. Because that type of job you can train somebody into in a matter of minutes. You can really It's so systematized at this point. They bring somebody in, and in a day you can tell whether they're going to work out or not. And if they're not, you tell them you're not going to work out here. This is not for you. We'll find something else. And you go to that place, and it's fat. I mean, it's still fast food, right? You know, it's still junk food in a way. It's probably better quality than a lot of other places. But the service level, the service level at the Chick Fil A down the road here, puts to shame every other fast food restaurant. It puts to shame some of the sit down and eat restaurants around the area. Why? Because competition attracts the best talent. And if it works for Chick Fil A, then it works in every sector. So. I think federal minimum wage is nonsense. I don't think there should be a minimum wage. And, you know, we've been talking about the evolution of humanity. There was a time for a minimum wage. There was a time for a minimum wage. We have passed that time. We've gone a long time without raising the minimum wage, and average wages for that type of work have gone up. There are jobs all over the place in North Texas right now making between $10 and $16 an hour for people with very little of experience but they have to be committed, they have to, they, have to, they have to be able to speak and communicate well, they have to show up, they have to show up on time, they have to make the case that if you give me this opportunity, I'm going to take it. We just had a job fair, a job fair here in, uh, in, in North Texas, and Amazon.com was there, and I listened to this radio host on Saturday when I was picking up some dirt, said that they were hiring people on the spot. You go to a job fair, you deliver your resume, you learn about the company, they learn about you, yeah, we'll have HR contact you. Oh, no, no, no. No, hey, you, you want a job? You can start next week. We're hiring right now. They were starting people out at $14 an hour. For the lowest level that they were, and they were hiring at higher levels, but the lowest level they were hiring at, they were hiring people on the spot for $14 an hour. Um, I recently got an email from somebody that's quite telling about all this bullshit, and it is bullshit. 
Here you go. This is from Brad in South Carolina. He says, I was told something a few days ago which proves that certain segments of society will never stand on their own feet. I was at a factory doing some temporary contract services and was told by the manager that they're having to go to surrounding towns to recruit employees because they cannot hire enough people from within our county to fill their vacancies. And they start people at $12 an hour and give them a raise to $15 an hour after six months. This, while our county has one of the highest unemployment rates in the state. I see no way this is an anomaly. So why people are yelling there are no jobs, America needs to make things again, decent jobs making stuff are sitting empty. He also told me that they started a program about a year ago with their new employees, where if they show up every scheduled day on time for an entire two-week period, they give them a $100 bonus, and they only pay out uh, about twice a month. So... <laughs> Basically, you go to work and show up on time every day for two weeks, and you get an extra hundred bucks in your paycheck. Do, do, do we want to do the math on that to just you know figure out what that means to the hourly wage? It's eighty cents an hour on a on a forty hour week, two weeks in a row, eighty hours is eighty cents. So a person that's been there for six months and simply does what they're supposed to do, show up on time, which is telling that there's a bonus for this, right? Just show up on time every t every every day for two weeks in a row. We'll give you fifteen eighty an hour effectively. We're giving you an eighty cent an hour bonus to show up. That's not a tremendous amount of money. Pays for your gas for Christ's sake, right? I mean, that's a that's not a great job, but it's a good job, better than anything I could find when I was a young kid starting out. I couldn't find a job like that. Even inflation adjusted backward, I couldn't find a job that was that good with that type of an incentive. Uh, to, to, to work. But now the next thing we need to ask ourselves is why are so many government employees so hip on raising the minimum wage? Why is the government so big on raising the minimum wage? Are they just pandering to voters? Well, no. There's another reason. Most federal government employment wages, where they start and what their raises are and their contracts and all, even though they don't pay anybody minimum wage, are based on ratios against minimum wage. So a minimum wage increase will cause an increase in wages at the next, you know, standard every, you know, you get you get an increase in wages based on the contract you have as a government employment employee through your union and, you know, every year or every two years or depending on how your contract works, you get a raise. It will result in a substantial increase in federal wages every time there's an increase from here forward, and it will raise the starting wages of many jobs in federal service that are not currently below minimum wage. In other words, it will cost us a whole shitload of money, a whole shitload of money that no one's talking about, because it's not just money that the, the consumer's going to get charged. It's money that's going to get spent in tax dollars. is non-discretionary wages for existing government departments and employees. So there's my little addition to it. Let's go ahead and take another one. This one is for Old Doc Bones, and it is from, who said that Luke sent this? It says, 
Uh, Doc Bones, you and Jack have both mentioned that diarrhea kills more people than the actual disaster in many third world countries. What are some post-disaster collapse scenario treatment options and preps we should do? I'm assuming we should have clean water stores and treatment processes ready in place. How important are electrolytes for dehydration recovery and what alternatives for those in a grid-down scenario? Old Doc Bones, buddy, what do we do so we don't literally... Crap ourselves to death. Guys, sorry, that's what it is. Hi, Joe Alden here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 posts on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week, my question for the Survival Podcast Expert Council asks about diarrheal disease and dehydration. Indeed, you'll see more deaths as a result of diarrhea and dehydration in a survival setting than deaths from gunfights at the OK Corral. Now, how do I know this? because armies on both sides in the Civil War are documented to have lost more soldiers to diarrheal diseases like dysentery than from bullets or shrapnel. Now, your question assumes clean water stores and treatment processes. That's a pretty big assumption. Supplies that sterilize water, like a pot, a method to heat water but to boiling, bleach, iodine, and water containers would be the medical supplies, yes, they're medical supplies in this case, you would need to make sure you're destroying pathogens, disease-causing organisms. Do you have these supplies in enough quantity to deal with the number of people you have or the time you'll be off the grid? Be honest with yourself. Now, as medic, you're not just the chief medical officer, you're the chief sanitation officer. It's your job to make sure that food is prepared safely, water is sterilized, and human waste is dealt with in the correct manner. If you don't, infectious disease is going to run rampant among your people. You don't have to dig that latrine by yourself, let's hope, or cook all the food, but you do have to set guidelines that cover safe practices. Let's talk about electrolytes. Electrolytes are substances that contain charges called ions that conduct electricity. All forms of life, or higher forms of life at least, can't live without them. Why? Because electrolytes regulate our nerve and muscle function, our body's hydration, our blood pressure, our blood pH, and the rebuilding of damaged tissue. Now, the main electrolytes include sodium, potassium, calcium, bicarbonate, magnesium, chloride, and phosphate. Salt water, sodium chloride, is a kind of electrolyte solution. Now, electrolyte imbalance can be manifested in several ways. The symptoms will depend essentially on which electrolyte is out of balance and whether that level is too high or too low. An altered level of magnesium, sodium, potassium, calcium can produce everything from muscle spasms to changes in blood pressure to irregular heartbeat to confusion, even seizures, and much, much more. When we sweat, we lose electrolytes, mainly sodium and potassium. And let's face it, you're going to sweat a lot if things go south one day. You can replace lost electrolytes with rehydration solutions, something you can make yourself. In one liter of water, add six to eight teaspoons of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, half a teaspoon of salt substitute, potassium chloride, and maybe a quarter of a teaspoon of bicarbonate in the form of baking soda. Add some flavoring if you'd like and put the concoction in two liters rather than one for kids. Of course, an old University of Florida alumni like myself can't avoid mentioning electrolyte-rich fluids like Gatorade, designed to essentially be colored, flavored sweat that you can drink. Water can keep you hydrated, but it isn't as useful as a replacement 
for electrolytes than fluids that have electrolytes in them. Of course, a balanced diet will have them too. If you've got your food and other supplies in good order, you've gone a long way to keeping it together, even if everything else falls apart. Okay, let's talk about natural alternatives. Various natural herbs have been reported to be helpful for diarrhea. Ginger, meadowsweet, blackberry or raspberry leaf, chamomile, peppermint, golden seal, sunflower leaf, garden sage, yarrow, mullein, nettle, slippery elm. Wow, just a lot of choices. With all of these, you can make a tea or infusion by pouring a cup of boiling water over one to two teaspoons of dried herbs and let it brew with a lid on for, let's say, 10 to 15 minutes. Strain it, drink a cup every two to three hours or until the person feels better. A small amount of raw honey can be added for taste. You'll find that the strength of effect will vary according to the individual. Don't forget that there are over-the-counter medicines that can help, and you should stockpile these in quantity. Peptobismol and Imodium loperamide in pill form will help stop diarrhea. They don't cure infections, but they'll slow down the number of bowel movements and conserve water. Oh, one last thing. You might think that antibiotics are needed for diarrheal disease. In certain circumstances, you're absolutely right. Doxycycline, metronidazole all come to mind as options for your medical storage. Remember, though, that the main side effect of antibiotic use is diarrhea. More on this and some other strategies for diarrhea and dehydration in future episodes. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Doc Bones is awesome. He really is. This is a guy uh, that took his, his, his long, successful medical career as, as an MD and uh, in his, his retirement, which is a pretty damn good one, turned around and said, you know what, I got more to do. And he has taken a, what I consider to be a brilliant mind. Now, now, believe it or not, Bones and I don't agree on every single thing. I think we do on medicine, because if I disagree, I usually defer to him, because uh, he knows more than me on medicine. But I mean, politically and stuff, we disagree. But I think he's one of the most most intelligent men I've ever met in my life. Um, and, and I really enjoy actually having conversations with him when we agree and when we debate. And he's just great. And I'm very glad to have him here with us. And I think that lives will be saved because of his contributions here at the Survival Podcast. Uh, next question is for Gary Collins. Gary has an interesting question this week. One we don't hear often. How do I gain some weight back after screwing up my body? Gary, this is from Clinton in Ohio. He wants to gain some weight back, but you know, not too much and not in the wrong ways and not in the wrong places. Right now, he can't put any weight on, no matter how much he eats on the paleo primal lifestyle. Uh, Gary, what say you on this unique instance? Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we have an excellent paleo diet related question today from Clinton who has been on the paleo diet for a couple years and he is having a hard time gaining weight. People are commenting that he looks a little sickly and uh, doesn't look healthy. This for men is not a good thing. We like to look healthy and muscular if we can. And I think there's a few things going on. Uh, he indicated that he, as mu- no matter how much fat he eats, he cannot seem to put on weight. Well, there's a couple different ways to go about that. Um, Without understanding any of his physical activity, like I said, I don't know. But what's happening is I think he's gotten off the paleo diet, and now he's into the ketogenic diet and low-carb diet realm. 
I don't know for sure, but that's what it sounds like to me. Remember, paleo is a little more balanced, and it'll be a more higher in protein than fat, and it seems like he's got them reversed. And if you want to gain fat, there's a couple ways to go about it. Uh, you can eat a lot of fat, but if you're very well keto adapted and very active, you're going to use that fat as instant energy. So you're never really going to store it because you're burning it all off. Or you're not using, your body is not adapted, fat adapted, or you're just not processing it correctly. So you're just excreting it and you're just, you're losing those calories. There's a couple different ways to tell that and we'll talk about it a little later. But for most people, let's start with just the basic macros that I suggest for people just starting out. And I recommend getting 35% of your calories in protein, 35% of your calories in fat, and 30% of your calories in carbohydrates. And I have found for most people who are active, this is a good ratio depending on what your goals are. And from there, you just tweak. And it depends exactly what you're doing. And my, my macros change all the time depending on what I'm doing. You know, if I'm very physically active, like right now I'm trying to build a house and do all these things and I'm going nuts. Well, I'm eating far more calories and eating far more carbohydrates than I usually do just because I need the energy. Um, and with that, you know, you got to figure out, I, I think that what he would want to do is two different things. And I would recommend upping his carbohydrates and I would also up his protein and then drop his fat consumption down a bit and see how that works. But with that, I mean, he seems more be more concerned about adding fat, and I don't think that's necessarily all he wants to do. He's he's 170 pounds and 6'1". That's pretty slim. I would recommend putting on some lean muscle mass. So he's going to have to really up his protein content, and he's going to have to start doing some resistance training, lifting, you know, getting back to those heavy lifting techniques, you know, not all the time. Uh, three days a week should be plenty for him and see how it goes. Now, with that, that will change his macros around to 50% protein, 30% uh, fat, and or 20% fat and maybe 30% carbohydrates or flip-flop those. He's just going to have to play with it to figure it out. Now, from there, you know, like I said, he wants to add a little fat. Well, the carbohydrates will do that. That's the quickest way to add fat, not eating fat. And then if you eat, you know, fat with carbohydrates, it actually accelerates that. So you have to be careful with the carbohydrates because the more you consume, the less you're able to use fat as energy. So that fat's going to be stored as body fat in addition to the carbohydrates. So that's what I'm saying. You got to play with it and, and figure out what works for you. I don't know what his goals are. I don't know if he wants to put on more muscle. He just indicated he wanted to put on more fat. Well, that's a simple one. All you do, like I said, all you have to do is add more carbohydrates. That's the simplest way, but I would not recommend that. I would recommend that he puts on more muscle and then also a little more fat. And, you know, remember also your, your macronutrient profile far as calories. So one gram of fat has nine calories. One gram of carbohydrate and protein has four calories. So fat is your most energy dense. So it would make sense that you would eat a lot more fat to put on fat, but your body doesn't work that way, especially when you're fat adapted. It wants to use that fat for energy. So 
if he plays with that, gets those uh, macros a little more in sync with his goals and gets more kind of into the primal lifestyle, um, depending, you know, if he's doing a lot of cardiovascular exercise too, you're going to be lean. So if he's doing a lot of hiking, running, jogging, maybe riding bikes and not having that lifting aspect in, he's just burning calories all the time and not really building more muscle. He's getting leaner and lighter because his body wants to be more efficient at what kind of exercise he's doing. So if you're doing long kind of endurance training, well, your body instantly wants to slim itself down to become more efficient at that and not put as much pressure on your joints. And it's easier to move less weight than move more weight when you're doing endurance training. Um, I hope that helps. And I hope I answered his question there. I hope it didn't get too confusing. But with that, like I said, you just have to, to play with your macros. Um, remember the carbohydrates that you want to eat. We're not talking going out and eating glazed donuts and sucking, you know, eating scones and sugary lattes. What you want to do is you want to up your starchy vegetables. So I would recommend in the form of sweet potato and also, you know, even potato. I know the paleo crowd can frown upon eating potatoes, but I'm not one of those. I think potatoes in the primal life is is just fine. But with your starchy carbs, you do have to be careful. Maybe up your consumption of nuts as well, uh, as they have more carbohydrates in them as well, even though they have a lot of fiber. So you just have to balance it out. But the easiest way is always to add more starchy carbs in and protein. And with protein, remember, if you're trying to add muscle, the general rule is one gram of protein per pound of body weight. So he weighs 170 pounds. He'll want to consume 170 grams of protein. That's where protein shakes come in. Not only are they great for weight loss, as I've explained in other episodes on how to do that, but what they do is they're great to add muscle because it's very difficult to eat that much protein. An average meal is around 35 grams of protein. So you can see how those numbers won't mesh up. And if you're very athletic, they rec- you know, it's recommended to do a, a gram and a half per body pound. So you can start to see it becomes very, very difficult to do it on food alone. So what you want to do is I would recommend if he wants to add muscle – do two protein shakes in addition a day. And that's why I provide, I have an organic, uh, organic pumpkin protein for those who have issues with dairy. And then I have an organic whey protein as well that I carry under my name brand. I have a couple others that are flavored that I carry. So those are the easiest after the easiest way to use protein shakes when trying to gain muscle is after the physical activity within a 30 minute window is to consume that protein shake. That is the easiest way, and if you want to go about it even a little more, uh, kind of, you want to stack it, you take a protein shake 35, 30, minute, 30 minutes to an hour prior to working out, and then you take it within that 30-minute window after you work out. It's pretty difficult. It's a lot of protein and a lot of calories, but that's what a lot of people do who are trying to gain muscle. If you have any questions, hit the comment section, or you can email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, good stuff from Gary there. And I do think that sometimes when we go into the paleoprimal world, we can we can go too ketogenic, um, especially for some people. I think everybody's different and things have to be adjusted. And I think getting into a state of ketosis during a fat-burning uh, period when you have a lot of fat to burn is actually quite beneficial. But 
staying in that state too long, I think, can can then begin to to cause issues for some bodies. Where other people that are differently adapted um, eat diets like that and are very very healthy people. If you look at the the diets of native Inuit, um, you know the, we, what we call Eskimos, which is really not the right word for it, but um, these guys for a very long period of time before you know modernization would live for half the year on almost exclusively things like whale blubber, a pure fat diet. And they were very, very healthy people. Of course, they were taking advantage of the long summer days during those periods of time as well. So there was a balance. It wasn't all year round. It was an in and out and a fluctuation. And I think we could always do too much of, of a good thing. I think that anything can become a problem if it's exclusive. It doesn't mean we start running out and eating Twinkies, though. Anyway, next question. This one is uh, on something that would be totally okay on a paleo-primal diet. Hot peppers. This is for Erica Strauss. Uh, the question is, what are some ways to store and use hot peppers? This is from Cameron. Erica, what say you on this great question? Hi, Cameron. Congratulations. Hot peppers are one of the easiest and most versatile vegetables when it comes to food preservation. If you think about it, chipotle peppers are really nothing more than dried smoked jalapenos. Cayenne pepper is just the finely ground powder from a particularly spicy variety of thin-skinned chili. Pickled cherry peppers, those cherry bomb peppers that you sometimes see stuffed with cheese on an antipasto tray, that's one way to use them. Jalapenos or serranos are key if you want to make something like Jack's lacto-fermented escabeche. So, you know, basically when it comes to hot peppers, you can dry them, pickle them, ferment them, make hot sauce, make pepper jelly, roast them, smoke them, freeze them. You're really limited here more by your preference and what kind of flavor you're going for than anything else. But I will try and cover a few of my favorite ways to handle a pepper overload. The first thing I do with my own crop of peppers is use them in any kind of salsa or relish that I want to ferment or can for the year. So many of my jalapenos and Anaheim peppers and serranos get chopped up and mixed with tomatoes and onions to make salsa. I both can and lacto-ferment salsa. Um, they're just really different types of preserves. I'll send Jack a link to a versatile, reliable salsa recipe you can check out that's safe for water bath canning. I know we've talked a lot about fermenting salsas in the past, but this is a salsa that you can put in a jar and a water bath can and put on your shelf for a year or longer. And remember, you know, if you like salsa, you're not limited to tomato salsa. Um, depending on what you like, there are good recipes for peach salsa, mango salsa, tomatillo salsa verde. And many of these recipes call for quite a lot of peppers. Now, peppers also ferment beautifully whole in large chunks or as what's called a pepper mash. Whole or large chunk peppers are best fermented submerged in usually a 3 to 5% brine with whatever additional flavorings like garlic or spices you prefer. You can ferment peppers uh, just by themselves, or you can do what Jack does, and you can mix them with other vegetables like carrots and onions to make like an escabeche. Now, a fermented pepper mash is just a mix of ground peppers, salt, and usually seasoning, sometimes vinegar, and that 
that ground up pepper combination is left to ferment for several days. And a pepper mash is often the first step in making DIY versions of chili paste and hot sauces, including sriracha, which is the really popular Thai hot chili sauce that makes pretty much all food taste delicious. If you Google around, you'll find several good recipes for pepper mash-based condiments. Uh, sometimes you'll have to look for lacto-fermented pepper sauce, something like that, but it'll come up. I also break out the dehydrator because peppers, both the sweet and the hot varieties, dry extremely well. The really spicy, thin skin varieties of hot pepper, I grow Ring of Fire, which is very similar to a cayenne. I use those to make dried hot pepper flakes like you'd shake on pizza or pasta. And the skin on those is so thin that even up here in rainy, drizzly Seattle, I can very often get them to dry right on the plant. If you live someplace that's a little more humid or you're drying a pepper with a thicker skin like a jalapeno, you want to pick your peppers when they're fully ripe, slice them in half lengthwise or into rounds, and set the pieces on a dehydrator tray. Dry your peppers at 135 to 140 degrees until they're brittle. And then if you want to, you can keep them just like that in a jar. The dried peppers will keep for years. You might lose some of the heat and the punch over time, but as long as you've dried them thoroughly and you keep them dry in an airtight jar, they're not going to go bad on you. You can also take your dried peppers and grind them into something similar to like a cayenne pepper or a chili flake. And the only difference in this kind of stuff is the pepper that you use, the dried pepper you use, and then how finely you grind them. Peppers with a moderate or thick flesh like jalapeno, banana, pepperoncini, serrano, these can be pickled in a vinegar brine very successfully to give you a condiment that will spice up everything from your tacos to Greek salads. If you want a water bath can, pickled pepper rings, and now we're getting very close to tongue twister land, you can use this basic formula from the National Center for Home Food Preservation, which will give you about four pint jars of pickled hot peppers. First, you want to wash, trim, and cut three pounds of mixed assorted peppers into rings. You can use all one kind of pepper. You can combine peppers. It doesn't matter. Add any dry spices that you like, like mustard seeds or bay leaf to your jars, and then fill the jars with the pepper rings. Make a brine of five cups of vinegar. This has got to be vinegar that's appropriate for pickling, which means it has to have 5% acidity. So you five cups of that. It doesn't matter if it's white vinegar, apple cider vinegar, but it does have to be 5% acidity. One and a quarter cups water and five teaspoons of fine salt. If you find the brine a little puckery to your taste, you can add a few tablespoons of sugar or honey to help mellow it out. And then you bring the ingredients of the brine to a boil and make sure all the salt, and if you're using it, the sugar is all dissolved. And then you fill the jars with the pepper rings to about a half inch from the top. This is called a half inch headspace. And then you go ahead and you process your pepper rings for 10 minutes in a boiling water bath canner. Now, if you've canned before, this entire process makes complete sense. If you haven't, just go look up the basic steps of canning. This is not a particularly difficult recipe, but you do have to know uh, how to can to interpret it. 
Now, if you vinegar pickle your hot peppers, don't throw out the vinegar after you use the peppers, because anytime you have a hot pepper infused vinegar, you have this great flavor booster for braises and barbecue sauces and dipping sauces and smoked meats. You could even use it in salad dressings. I mean, just imagine you're making yourself some, say, pineapple barbecue sauce to go on some nice slow smoked pork shoulder, and instead of using just plain apple cider vinegar. In that barbecue sauce, you use a jalapeno vinegar. That's just going to add an extra kick of flavor to your sauce. So you can use the brine as well as the pickled peppers themselves. Now, in terms of how you use hot peppers that you've preserved in various ways, I mean, basically get out a culinary encyclopedia and throw a dart. You know what I mean? It's like every major cuisine in the world uses preserved peppers in its cooking. So you really just have to pick the kind of flavors and cuisines that you like and go in that direction. You know, if you feel totally clueless here, the cuisines of Central and South America are a really great place to start. Just within the culinary traditions of Mexico, there has to be at least a thousand different ways to use preserved hot peppers. Mexican cuisine makes really, really good use, especially of dried peppers. You can take inspiration from this by making spice rubs with your dried hot peppers for grilled or stewed meats,、um, or you can even try your hand at making a traditional red chili sauce or a mole sauce. If you've got some of those pickled or fermented jalapenos, you can add those to beans, to eggs, to pork.、Um, you can throw them in a taco. You know, if you if you have very kind of simple tastes, just make yourself a big old platter of Tex-Mex nachos and throw some pickled jalapeno rounds over the top, and congratulate yourself on a job well done. If you like kind of a more Asian flair, you can go a little more Sichuanese, and you can combine dried, crushed red pepper flakes with garlic and ginger to make spicy, pungent dishes like kung pao chicken or dry fried pork and green beans. Or you can take your dried hot peppers and soak them in warm oil for an hour or two to get a spicy dipping oil that you can use with pot stickers. The Mediterranean cuisines, like Italian and Greek, you know, they tend to be a little less fiery than something like Sichuan Chinese cuisine, but they still make very versatile use of dried and pickled peppers. And this doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, a big platter of pasta with olive oil and crushed red pepper flakes and garlic and a crumbly cheese like mizithra—that's That's pretty delicious stuff right there. So really, when it comes to preserving and using your hot peppers, the sky is the limit. But I do hope I've given you a few ideas to get started. Thanks, guys. This has been Eric of Northwest Edible Life. And hey, you know, if you like the kind of stuff I talk about here on the Survival Podcast, you might want to check out my brand new book. It's called The Hands On Home, and it's available for pre-order now on Amazon, and will be at your local bookstore on September 29th. It's full of all kinds of recipes to help people get more DIY with their cooking, preserving, and home and body care. And as always, you can come say hi anytime at nwedible.com or visit me at facebook.com/nwedible. Appreciate your questions. Please keep them coming, and I will talk to you next week. Erica is awesome, and、uh, she sent a slew of links. A lot of the stuff she was talking about there are all in the show notes, including one of making the homemade sriracha, which is cool because most commercial sriracha sucks, and sriracha, when done properly, is one of the greatest hot sauces in the world.、Uh, I'll add one thing: I like to do. I like to take hot peppers of various different、uh, types. And cut them into small pieces, and then dehydrate them. And then you take those pieces and you make a blend. Let's say a little jalapeno, a little、uh, little ancho, and maybe some really hot stuff like a little bit of habanero, and black peppercorns. 
and maybe green peppercorns. And, and, and that way you have some things that kind of mellow things out. You take that mix and you store it in a jar. And what you do is whenever you're going to use it, you put it in a pepper mill. Just like you grind black pepper in, you put all of those in there. Now, I know that black pepper is not a pepper in the way that we think of and what we're talking about here. But they all once they're nice and crisp, they all grind. And what I've found is a lot of people that say, I, I don't want to use hot sauce because hot sauce is like, if I put hot sauce on it, it's like this blob, right? And it's, it's really hot if you use a hotter hot sauce. But they, they actually like heat. But they don't like it all in one place, all at one time, and blow your brains out heat. And you can control how much of the really hot stuff you do. And, of course, you can start out using something like just jalapeno or uh, jalapeno, and, and maybe you go with some really you know, mild uh, peppers like poblano, like a poblano, jalapeno, black peppercorn, and white peppercorn blend. It would be really, really mild. Um, you can do chipotle that way. You can do anything that way. And it's just another way to then have like another thing you can do with a very easy-to-grow uh, crop. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take our next question. This one's for Ben Falk. And this is an interesting one, and I get different versions of this one all the time, so it'll be interesting to hear Ben uh, answer this one. It says, when developing land bordering conventional row crop land, is it a good idea to plant a windbreak and build a berm around the entire property to prevent overspray and drift and runoff chemicals used in neighboring conventional operations? Should overspray and drift and runoff even be a major concern? He's looking for five to ten acres of property in the heart of industrial bean and corn country, and most of the land that he can find is, you know, right in the, you know, in the heart of farm country. There's, there's a farm somewhere very, very close to every piece of land he's looking at. His name's David, and he has this question again for Ben Falk. Ben, what say you on this common concern for people that are trying to go, you know, permaculture and natural? And all around them is this industrial goop. And I think some of these things even apply to residential areas where all the neighbors are using true green Kemlon type stuff. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design and the Ex Expert Council. Um, question about, you know, essentially I think the, the, the core of this question is what to look for if you're buying land in, in corn country, in industrial ag country. Uh, as, a, as at least as a larger question, but in particular, corn and bean country in Illinois, um, you're saying that most of the parcels are just five to ten acres. One thing I would immediately be drawn to is larger parcels. You know, and, and where I do a lot of my work is in in hilly country where there's not in you know drift is not a concern. And I don't know if you, I don't think you mentioned drift, but that's really the big concern there. Aside with water quality, you know, aquifer contamination. So you've got drift, pesticide, herbicide, drift, fungicide, drift, chemical, chemicals blowing over your property. We call that drift. And then you have your water that you have access to in the ground contaminated as well by the toxic activities of your neighbors. Um, there's not really anything you can do to prevent your neighbors from poisoning your water supply. Um, but there is, there are steps you can take to keep yourself from getting drifted over by chemicals. One of the first orders of business you can do is buy as large of a piece of property as you can because you can develop as large of a buffer as possible. To keep drift down, you essentially need distance from the source of the chemicals and you also need ideally also a buffer, you know, a planted vertical buffer of ideally vegetation that's as tall and as thick as possible. 
you can usually only afford to make something as tall, only so tall or so thick, uh, depending on your you, the amount of area you're working with. Um, even if you have, let's say, a thousand acres surrounded by corn and soy, and you could plan a you know 500 foot wide buffer, usually there's a budgetary uh, constraint to doing so. Uh, never mind that you're giving up a whole bunch of potentially product, productive or economically productive land. Um, to just keep the, you know, the pesticide herbicide drift down. So all in all though, the larger it is, the better because the more just you have distance working in your favor. Um, but the other big piece is, is, um, concerns wind direction. Now wind can vary for sure, but there's predominant winds and generally, um, wind is coming from the West in your area of the world. So I would be particularly interested in not only the largest properties I could find, but the properties that have non-industrial land to my West and, and land that's not even able to be cropped industrially. So I'd be looking towards the e towards land to land that is East of a really bad place to do industrial agriculture. It could be even a wetland, although they do they do spray wetlands, aerial sprays in certain parts of the world. It uh, could be east of a really rocky knoll that no one's going to farm industrially, or it could be east of um, you know a large body of water or anything, some very protected area of forest. Depending what the soils are, someone might do industrial agriculture there in the future, no matter what a piece of paper says about that area being protected or not. So I'd be looking um, to be downwind of non-industrial ag. And then having that industrial ag on as few sides of me as possible, you mentioned some are totally surrounded by them, some are on one, you know, it's one side or another. Well, I'd much rather have it on one side than on two sides or three, uh, or certainly four. No matter what I would do, I would also plant a drift barrier on all sides of me that drift might come from right off the bat with fast-growing perennial woody crops like black locust, potentially Osage orange if you're in a warm enough climate, willow, alder, cottonwood, hybrid poplars, um, and also a lot of conifers as well. Conifers are really fantastic at cleaning up air, and they used to be planted around sanitariums and like hospitals when people used to think about these things, especially pines. So I would try to mix in pines with a... Um, a faster growing windbreak and have like a transitional windbreak that would be planted. It would be good to work with at least a 50 foot wide buffer to do this. A hundred would be even better. Getting your, uh, tree, tree seedlings from uh, state nurseries could be helpful or raise them from seed yourself. You could even till lines and seed things like black locust with a seed drill to plant. You know, you're talking t thousands, if not tens of thousands of trees to achieve this on something like a, a 10 to 100 acre piece of land. Um, I would also look at the slope of the land and the land shape and kind of how the wind's moving in cross-section, although mostly you're probably going to be dealing with very flat land, so that's not going to be a very big issue. Um, so those are some of the strategies. Take out, check out the USDA wind breaks um, uh, literature online and ATRA, A-T-T-R-A, I believe has really good windbreak information online. There's fantastic information out there about the most strategic ways, essentially, to get a windbreak. Because what you need to do, as far as a drift barrier, is essentially a windbreak design. Um, beyond that, you should um, be focused on, you know, a lot of, like, healthy whole foods and medicines, you know, as far as how you live your day-to-day -day life. But if you're just trying to protect yourself... 
from pesticide, herbicide drift, you know, windbreak design is really your, your matter of business beyond searching for land that needs that as little as possible. Um, so it's certainly, uh, it certainly can be effective. And um, there's a lot of ways you can go about creating a homestead in, in that part of the world, although it's very challenging. You're not going to avoid uh, toxic, you know, contamination of your property to 100% extent. You know, if you're in corn and soy industrial ag country, your water is going to be polluted almost definitely, and your air is going to be polluted to at least some extent. It's just the uh, the fact of the matter of living in that part of the world, any part of the world, actually, but especially in an area that's so close to the, to uh, large sources of these pollution. So good luck to you. I think that's a it's a really important project here. It's some some kind of uh, uh, you know project that's uh, focused on life and lifelike systems and health in uh, in area of um, such predominant toxicity. I think Ben sort of touched on something there at the end that I think is important whenever we're trying to develop property and do it in a natural way. You are not going to get away from toxins. This this planet right now is producing so many toxins that even when you think you're getting away from toxins, you're not getting away from toxins. Let me explain part of what I mean by that. And I think this will really drive the point home. Every spring, we get rains here. In, in, in Texas. I mean, almost every spring. We've had some drought years, but most years we get spring rains. It's the summer we don't get any rain. And many years, we will get a rain a few times a year where when you go out after the rain, you'd expect your car would be pretty clean. I know it's spotty from the water and all, but you wouldn't expect there to be dirt on the car, especially if the car was clean before it rained. But the, the, the car will be covered in a red dust. A red dust. Where does that come from? It comes from out Lubbock Way. Which, if you get a map and take a look at it, Lubbock and, and Dallas-Fort Worth are pretty far apart. I, I Again, I don't think people get the spaces in Texas. People talk about, I ride across town on my bike. Yeah, try that here. Somebody just sent me uh, a picture of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and superimposed was the state of Connecticut. And it was barely bigger than the outside uh, of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Um, that kind of makes my statement for me. Like The Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex is almost as big as Connecticut. Uh, and Lubbock is hell and gone from Dallas-Fort Worth. So if dust is falling in rain on my land from Lubbock, then the stuff in that dust is being taken up in the atmosphere, carried by clouds, and dropped down onto my land. So while I agree with everything Ben said about trying to pick the best piece of land, avoidance, windbreaks, and doing all that we can, in the end, we need to accept that there are going to be contaminants and things on our property. And so this is my view. You do all the things Ben said, and you build as many natural native systems and, and natural design systems as you can into your plants. You put as much nature and diversity there, and nature will fix more of it than you can imagine. As far as the water, that's the big thing with a well. A well in farm country is going to have contamination, and there's going to be certain things that you're going to have a real hard time not, you know, not dealing with. So one of the other things I would add is it would be very important to me to try to find a piece of land where I could put in several large ponds where the catchment is from my property only or at least almost my property only. Uh, I would want to be diverting water that is coming in from adjacent catchments 
from anything that I do to harvest catchment on my property. And that can be challenging. That can be challenging. Sometimes there's not a lot of catchment on the land you have. And a lot of time it's the land above your land that provides all this catchment that nobody else is smart enough to do anything with. But in the end, we can make this work anywhere. If people can do it in downtown L.A., you can do it in farm country. But I agree with Ben, too. You might want to look at some land that's considered a little less desirable to agriculture. It may actually cost a little bit less per acre. you may be able to get more land. And remember, a lot of people say looking for five acres to do permaculture on. If you get a piece of land that's 20 acres and 15 of it's like hilly and not really suited to anything, well, there's your zone four or your zone five, I'm sorry. And develop the five and leave the other 15 as woods. Go hunting there, go fishing there, sustainably hunt and gather there, etc. That's just my additional thoughts on that one. Next up, you know, Ben just mentioned black locust, and I think it's one of the best uh, overall trees we can use in North America for nitrogen fixing, for shade, for a lot of really great things. Well, we just happen to have a question about propagating black locust for propagation expert Nick Ferguson. It's... Uh, this question comes from, I guess I lost the guy's name, sorry about that, but what is the most effective way to germinate locust seeds from seed pods balancing effort with success rates? So Nick, what say you on the propagation of black locust from seed? Hey guys, it's Nick Ferguson calling in to answer the question on germinating black locust seeds. Now I am on the road right now, literally on the road, headed to the airport. I've been on a consult all week, so please pardon the road noise or any cell phone uh, mishaps. Um, germinating black locust seed is really simple and straightforward. What you're going to need is something like a, a Pyrex dish or Pyrex uh, measuring cup or a mason jar, and you're going to put your black locust seed in the jar and you're going to bring some water up to a boil. And once that hits boil, just set that water off to the side. You're going to let that come off of a boil for a couple seconds, just as long as it's not actually boiling. You're going to pour that really hot water over your seed. And I just let that sit for a few hours to even overnight. Um, I, I wouldn't suggest letting it sit more than 12 hours in that water. And so if you do that at night before you go to bed, then when you get up in the morning, um, drain off the water and sort out the seeds that have swollen. So some of the seeds will puff up like, they're, um, like they've absorbed a lot of water. You want to set those off to the side and put them in a damp paper towel. And I would just set those on the counter and make sure they're not going to dry out. So you might want to cover it with... Uh, um, a bowl or a plate or something like that. And then the remaining seeds that haven't swollen up, then you're going to put them back in that jar and pour more hot water over top of them. And you keep doing that until all of them have swollen. And that's the same process that we use for things like Lucena, um, honey locust. Most of those dry, hot, arid climate uh, leguminous species um, that's the way that we uh, stratify them. That's uh, a hot scarification or scarification. So that's the way you do it. That's pretty simple, pretty easy. And uh, once they've swollen up like that, you can plant them directly or you can sprout them in the paper towel. 
For more information on what I do, go to permacultureclassroom.com, and y'all have a great weekend. Yeah, I think it's that's exactly how I do it when I do um, locust or if I do a mimosa tree and, and uh, lucena. Uh, Marjorie, here's a little addition to this. Marjorie Walcraft sent me some lucena seed and said that her germination rates were 10%. So I put them in the jar just like Nick said, and I forgot about them for like two days. And they were hugely swollen. I'm like, oh, crap. I threw them in a paper towel, and in a day, I had like 90% germination. So if you have a particular, uh, and I didn't do the multiple treatments and all, which I agree with doing that, but I mean with the Lucena, that's what I did. I, I just forgot about it. It was actually during an event, and you guys were here, and it confused me, and I forgot, and I was like Monday morning, oh, dude, what did I do? And it works. So sometimes you learn through accidents. Uh, it happens. Anyway, but I want to also do this. Nick, as good as he is at propagation, is going to plant about 300 locust trees on his property this winter. And I was ordering locust trees for my property here and said, hey, if we break the 500 unit, we get a price break. Do you want to order them? And he's like, I think I'll just sow them. And when I pointed out how cheap they were in a quantity of 100 or 200, he realized like it was actually for that quantity and for putting them on your property and for getting ahead – You know, and getting a tree up to a point where it's not, you know, browsed down to nothing by a duck, uh, you know, almost immediately, uh, it was worth the money to buy the tree. So I think that when we look at something like locust, that's that's available from from big nurseries like Coldstream Farm and Lawyers, etc., at you know prices under a dollar a tree uh, for two-year-old trees that are you know two feet tall. I think we were getting them for eighty-seven cents for trees of that size. If you're going to do 100 or 150 trees, it, it, it might be advantageous in many ways to not propagate from seed. If you're going to do what Ben was just talking about, you're going to put in 20,000 locust trees, yeah, yeah, then we're going to get a seed drill, you know, or at least a seed wheel, and uh, we're going to start, you know, doing up seeds. So I think it's it, it always, always be willing to at least price out several different ways you can accomplish something because sometimes something costs more but not that much more so for instance if you're getting locust trees for 87 cents uh and let's just round that down to, to round it up to 90 cents right uh and you need 200 that's 180 bucks 180 bucks for somebody to do two years worth of looking after the tree for you and send you a tree that is going to take off like lightning when you put it in the right situation so Always balance those two because yeah, you can get a couple hundred locust seeds for nothing. So that's that's the other side of it. How cash strapped are you? What's your time horizon? What are you developing? What's going to be co-developed with it? All of those things have to be taken into consideration. All right. Next up, I have a question for Chef Keith Snow uh, on mutton. Mutton, of course, is basically a lamb that grew up into a sheep and then became graduated into sheep chops instead of lamb chops. Uh, this question comes from Bob in Florida. Says I have two up to two up to four older ewes. Uh, and possibly two older rams that I will be culling. My original thought was to grind them in a hamburger and use it that way, but since each of the ewes weighs between 160 and 200 pounds and the rams are 250 and 300 pounds, that'd mean a freezer full of ground mutton. Uh, also, my family and I love leg of lamb, which uh, because we raise sheep we have quite often, and chops of steaks and ribs of lamb, but we are concerned that these older animals may be too tough to be used that way. Can't wait to hear your suggestions. Bob in Florida, Chef Keith. 
What do we do with those older sheep? And you can bet I will have some additional thoughts on this one. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Bob's question from Florida about all the mutton. Now, it seems that you have quite a few sheep around, Bob, and you're looking for some interesting ways to cook them. And uh, I would agree that just um, ground mutton, while it's certainly versatile, can get a little boring. Now, this is a classic meat that's used in Indian cooking. I'm sure you probably know that. Um, but I'm going to give you a recipe today, and it's going to be a little daring because a lot of people that think of Indian cooking immediately think of going to the store and buying curry. Let's get curry. And they think that curry is an ingredient. Oh, just use curry. Oh, what is it? It's curry. Curry is not an ingredient. Curry is a mixture of spices. Now, that may sound a little strange, but making your own curry is super simple. And nobody's curry is right. You can't say that curry has this, 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 and this only. Curry is really what you want to make of it. The key to good curry is using fresh spices. Now, I must say the stuff in the store that comes, um, they have to make so much of it to supply that stuff on a national level that oftentimes it's old and very oftentimes it's not very high quality. So to that end, what I want you to do is make your own curry and you're going to have some amazing mutton. Now, I would definitely, you can freeze this meat so you have a lot of it. I would break it up into packages and I would definitely invest in something like a, um, what do you call those things, a food saver or some type of a vacuum packaging machine. And I would probably, you know, cut this meat into large chunks, like the size, I would say the size of maybe a small orange or a small apple. So not little golf balls and not footballs, but about the size of, of an, a small orange. Big chunks that don't have to be perfect, don't have to be perfect squares. In fact, you don't want them to be. So odd-shaped chunks around um, that size. Then you can take those and I would put them in cryovac bags or whatever those food saver bags are called these days, and I would vacuum pack them and freeze them. And I would definitely make sure that with this much meat in a freezer that you have some type of backup power. I say that from experience. I went and bought, I don't know, around $300 worth of really nice grass-fed beef a couple of years ago, put it in my freezer, my backup freezer in the garage, and of course, for some reason, the breaker popped and all the meat rotted. Not a good experience. Now, I don't know how to do it, but I know you can do it by using some solar panels. Um, a lot of folks do that where they will have some solar and they'll have some system to where the freezer always has power. Now, maybe you want to check with Steve Harris about that. That actually would be a great question to call in, but just a warning, be careful with all that meat. You don't want to lose it. Now let's get to the cooking, which is the fun part. So what you need to do is marinate this meat. This is these animals, when they get a little older, um, they can be really tough and definitely strong flavored. Very, uh, the word gamey comes into play, but something that you raise on your own property like this, that's a good thing. That means it's eating high quality foods. So you want to use some strong flavors with this. So what you're going to do is take um, you take about, I would say, around four pounds of of uh, mutton. Cut it into the chunks, like I said. Put it in a giant bowl that can be refrigerated. Then you want to take 
three tablespoons of coconut oil. Put that in a separate dish, and you're going to add spices. Go out and find yourself whole spices. Avoid buying any ground spices at the supermarket. So whole spices. And you're going to then um, toast them in a dry pan and grind them up in a spice grinder. You want one-half teaspoon cardamom. One teaspoon cumin, quarter teaspoon cayenne pepper. That's probably the only one I could say you could use um, already ground. And this is the next one. Half teaspoon pumpkin pie spice. You can get that at a supermarket. Generally, that's going to be okay. But after that, I want you to do your own grinding. One teaspoon turmeric. One teaspoon fennel seed. One teaspoon fenugreek. And then... What you're going to do is take the coconut oil and all those spices and make a paste. You're going to take that paste and rub it carefully all over the meat. Then, in a separate bowl, you're going to take one can of petite diced tomatoes, organic if possible, with all the juice. And you're also going to take about two cups of plain yogurt. It has to be plain yogurt. No flavorings and something like a Danin or just any plain yogurt. You're going to mix the yogurt with the tomatoes. You're not going to have any salt in this mixture. And then you're going to take that and add it to the mutton and the spices and the coconut oil and massage the whole thing over and make sure everything is well combined and coated. Then you're going to cover it with plastic wrap in contact. In other words, take a big piece. You could also use parchment, big piece of plastic wrap, and you're going to press it down on top of the meat. You don't want a bunch of air gaps. So plastic wrap in contact in the refrigerator, and you can marinate that at least overnight. I would definitely, if you had the time, do it overnight. Then what you're going to do is take a nice, and here's where I assume that people have the right equipment, but maybe they don't. If I was cooking this, I would take my Dutch oven. I have multiple Dutch ovens. They happen to be uh, Staub, S-T-A-U-B. They come from the uh, German-speaking section of northeastern France, Alsace. And that's where they have a lot of uh, German influence, and these are really well-made um, pots. And the key to these pots is they have a tight-fitting lid. In other words, when... Things start bubbling away. The evaporation is not going to get out of the pot. That is critical. So make sure you have a Dutch oven with a tight-fitting lid. So when you're ready to cook this, it's very simple. Just heat up the Dutch oven, pour the entire mixture in there, and you're going to need a pretty big um, cooking pot. And it's fine to use a slow cooker. If you have one of those nice slow cookers, that will work too. If you're doing a slow cooker... I would cook this thing probably five hours at least, at least, and you just have to judge the tenderness. But what I want to do with this is put it into a Dutch oven, cover, you pour it in there, you heat the Dutch oven up, pour the stuff in there, cover it, and you're going to add um, chicken broth to it. You're going to add about three cups of chicken broth, but this is something that I don't know what size pot you have. I don't know what's how much meat you're actually going to use. The key is that you want the liquid to be about three quarters of the way up the meat. You don't want it covered in it. It's not supposed to be submerged and you don't want all the meat above the liquid. So add as much chicken broth or if, if you've got all these animals and bones, make a stock using these bones. That would be the way to do it. So you pour in the stock and what you're going to be doing is sort of slow cooking and braising all at the same time. Now what you do is you fill the liquid up so it's about three quarters, cover it and then you put it into an oven in your oven at 250 degrees. And you're going to cook it in the oven for about three and a half hours. 
And then after three and a half hours, you take the lid off and you're going to test it for tenderness. Now, you really want this meat super tender. Um, what happens when you cook it in the oven, it it does something to it. Where it, And I always see this, like if I make a, a chili on the stove with, that has big chunks of beef in it, a real you know Texas chili. If I just cook it on the stove compared to tucking it into a slow oven, when you tuck it into the oven, the sides of that pot, the lid of that pot have a radiating heat effect, and it definitely, definitely adds a special something to it. So after all of that cooking time, you should have very tender meat, and you're going to have a nice brothy uh, mix there. Now, I would definitely serve this over something like a basmati or a jasmine rice, and I would probably make something like a... Tomato and onion relish, something you know that you see in Indian cooking. They have these very spicy and, and interesting relishes to go on top. I would probably throw on some chopped cilantro, uh, but serving it over rice with some of that broth, that is going to be my best suggestion for using up that mutton in, a, in an interesting way, Bob. So hopefully that works out for you. If anybody has any questions about cooking, you can always reach me, Keith at HarvestEating.com. Don't fret if it takes me more than a couple of days to get back with you because there's a lot of you out there. Jack is doing a great job. So um, I do get your emails and I will respond. And I wanted to thank all of you for supporting the Thoughtful Harvest Pasta Sauces because so many of you that listen to the show have gone over to Amazon. You've placed orders and left reviews. We're up to, I don't know, 16 reviews already. So the, the kind of initial launch of it is going well. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to everybody. And uh, that's about all I have for you guys and gals. So have a great weekend. I'm out. Great stuff from Keith, and now you're hungry. Well, watch Jack make you hungrier. Um, there is some mythology around muffin all, mutton always being tough. Now, is a, a leg of mutton tender like a, a beautiful grass-finished lamb? No, it is not. It is not going to be. It is definitely tougher. But cuts of meat vary in their toughness based on what the animal does with the muscle. So a leg muscle, a shoulder muscle, these are heavily used muscles. And an older animal, that muscle gets very dense and very strong. And sheep are, you know, you look at a sheep, you sit there and it feel like, and you think, man, sheep are strong animals. They are tough, tough animals. And I don't mean tough like the meat stuff. I mean, they're just tough critters. And so your legs, your shoulders, etc., tend to be a lot tougher on sheep. And a lot of the stuff that Keith was talking about, and I have some other ideas I'll give you in a second, you, you, these long, slow cooking that breaks down the muscular fibers and, and makes the meat tender uh, is a great way to deal with those. However, uh, in Texas we have something we call exotic rams. These are various different sheep uh, that have gone feral. And over the years I've, I've killed more than my fair share of them. And we've we've eaten them, and I was always told by people that that hunt them, set, you know, they're they're good for nothing but sausage. You know, they're just tough as leather and all. I'm like, you know, if I'm going to shoot an animal, I'm gonna I'm gonna use it and see how it works. So I've done a lot of things with like slow cooking shoulders and stuff like that, and it's fantastic. It's a little they can be a little stringy, but it's fantastic. But your 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 loin chop that 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 you know the like back strap they call it, it goes all the way from the neck all the way down to the to the to the butt roast. Uh, not to the butt roast, to the rump roast. That's fantastic. Cut thick and cooked on the grill, just like a chop. 
it's not as tender as lamb, but it actually has more flavor in, in a good way. Keith used that word I hate again, gamey. Uh, gamey means that it has flavor that you're not familiar with, so you're calling it gamey, or you cooked it like shit, and now you're calling it gamey, or the meat was handled poorly, and now you're calling it gamey. Gamey is not a real thing. Gamey is a bullshit word that's been made up to make excuses for or describe flavors that people are not familiar with. Because people say, you know, rabbits gamey and sheep are gamey. Well, they taste nothing like each other. There's not, you know, salty is a flavor. Gamey is not a flavor. So my little mini rant there is, is now over. Um, but if you, if you take those chops and you cook those on the grill and cook them to a medium temperature, believe it or not, they're pretty fantastic. It's more like, instead of eating uh, a, a really great uh, lamb loin chop, think of it more like the density of like a New York strip, right? A New York strip beefsteak, right, is, is, is more what it's like. It's got a more uh, aggressive thing, but they're pretty good. The other thing that was surprised by that we did, and, and these, you know, wild sheep are nowhere near as fattened up and as is, 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 is heavy as a domesticated sheep is we took the flank steak, which is basically where you make you know your pork belly, you make bacon from with a pig, uh, and we, you cut down the ribs and then down along you know, to, to the, the, the hind flank and you get this big you know, flank steak off of there. I did that like fajitas. It was freaking fantastic. The key was when it was done, let it rest, and don't, everybody takes flank steak and cuts it long ways because that's the way the grain goes. And then you put it on like a taco or something and you're pulling against the grain. Uh, cut it in smaller pieces. You do this with your flank steak for beef too, by the way. Just cut it in smaller, shorter pieces and then cut your strips against the grain so that when you, if you do leave it whole, when you go to bite it and pull it out, you're actually pulling the grain apart. So that's, that's with your, your cows too, guys. You know, do your, do your flank steaks for your fajitas and, and cut them against the grain. But with uh, the mutton flank steak, what you do is you, you, you cut it against the grain, and then you turn the strips, and you cut them into small squares, and you make tacos out of it. It's freaking dynamite fantastic. So there's a lot of things you can do. And, you know, getting this question, and with the, the detrimental attitude that people seem to have toward mutton, uh, in fact, you know, in, in England, when lamb was really, really popular and wool was popular and, you know, you, you there was tons of ranchers that were like peasants, uh, a lot of the upper crust people called them mutton eaters because they would, that was their meat. Their meat was their coal lambs, right, or their coal, their coal rams and ewes. And because a lamb was so valuable that they couldn't afford to eat it themselves, they had to sell it off for the money that they could get and they lived on mutton. But those people didn't mind eating mutton. They really didn't. Mutton's some good stuff. And it makes me wonder, if one were to check in their area with people that do lamb and said, what do you sell your coal rams and use for, might there actually be a pretty great opportunity uh, to purchase those animals uh, for meat use? Because it is a pretty substantial yield off of, of, of an adult uh, male ram. Some of these bigger rams, these uh, they, there's a there's a wild ram that, that lives in Texas. It's not wild. It's a it's a feral is, is the better word for it. That they a lot here they call it a, a Rambo ram, and it just looks like a big woolly sheep. I don't know what its domestic breed really is, but these things go over 300 pounds. Um, never shot one. Uh, they're not challenging to hunt, guys. Just so you know, it's pretty much. 
um, you know, with a rifle, it's, 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 it's too easy, really. They're more of a bow hunter sport. On the right ranches where they're not just fed under a feeder and tamed down, uh, they can be a, an interesting hunt for a, a bow hunter. But the rifle hunter is just you go out and pick one and shoot it. So um, if you want to hunt them, I say pick up the bow. But, you know, I'm wondering, are there, are there certain breeds of ram uh, or sheep that would be available to purchase from breeders and from ranchers who otherwise just view it as a, as a low-level form of meat? Uh, or do more of those guys like you know Bob here from Florida start to figure this out and keep it for themselves? Anyway, just my thoughts there. Next question is the final question of the day for the expert council. Uh, this one is for who haven't we heard from yet? It is for cheese. I'm messing this. Is Darby Simpson. Darby, uh, this question is from Rachel. Rachel wants to know: Is it possible to keep a couple Dexter? or other mini-breed cattle on less than one acre in a leader-follower system? Could rabbits be used in place of cows in super-small-scale leader-follower systems? Is there a better option? Darby, what say you on this one? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Rachel's question about raising cattle on her one-acre homestead in southeastern North Carolina. And, Rachel, it's uh, it's awesome that you're seeing the effects of building soil. And um, you, you mentioned in your email here that you're having to, you know, mow your lot twice as often as your neighbors because you've, you've put some chickens out there and they're free-ranging and they're building the soil and you're seeing the effects of, of spreading some natural fertilizer. And so now you've got a new good problem, and that is, you've got too much grass. So uh, your main question in your email was uh, whether or not I thought you could raise a couple of cattle uh, on your one-acre lot here. And while I'm never going to tell someone that they can't do something, i got to tell you, you're really pushing the limits with the amount of space you have in trying to bring in cattle on one acre, even if they're they're small cattle and even if your soil is really, really good. So um, you, you say that you're wanting to, uh, you know, have an end goal uh, in a leader-follower system of, you know, like a, a Dexter or another miniature-sized cow with a calf on the side and then also having a 12- to 24-month-old animal that you're, you're finishing out for meat. So really what you're talking about is having two and a half cows out there. And on one acre, unless your grass is just like crazy good, that goal is probably out of reach. Um, I want to want to mention a couple of things here. So what we use on our farm, just as a rule of thumb, is um, we've got about an acre and a half per cow. And we've got really good soil. It's getting better all the time. The people that were just here for the workshop were just amazed at how green and lush it was. And and looking at it and seeing that it was getting ready to be grazed for the fifth time this summer, we hadn't had any rain in a month. And that's the effects of, of building soil, and that's kind of what you're starting to see at your place. So while I can kind of give you that rule of thumb of you know 1.5 acres per cow, Really, what we always want to talk about in stocking density is not a you know uh, number of head per acre, but it's pounds of live weight per acre. And what we've been doing at our farm, uh, particularly earlier earlier this spring when we had the, the really you know uh, high thick growth and plenty of rain, and we were just firing on all cylinders, is we had about twenty thousand pounds of live weight per half acre per day. So you can get some pretty high stocking densities, um, but then you've got to be able to uh, you know lower those stocking densities when you get into this time of year and 
and things start to dry up and the grass isn't growing as fast and, and things of that nature. So um, you've got some pretty aggressive uh, uh, <laughs> pretty aggressive goals here. You mentioned that you know you want to get a couple of Tamworth pigs out there and some white midget turkeys and geese and maybe even some ducks and 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 then possibly rabbits along with your your laying hens and with with all that going on um i just i don't think you're going to be able to fit in dexter cattle on that one acre lot um now that's not to say that you couldn't possibly raise some pigs out there and let them graze but now i want to i want to caution you here too pigs are not going to just graze if you don't wring their noses, they will absolutely destroy everything out there. They will root it up. They will go after the bugs and the grubs and and all the stuff down in the soil that they want, and uh, they will just destroy your your grasses out there. So please keep that in mind. Pigs are not true grazers. They are not true grazers. They are not true grazers. They will tear up your pasture. They will destroy it. Ask me how I know. Um, now, if you wanted to wring them. And kind of limit where they're at. Uh, you could get some grazing done with with pigs, but you're still going to be bringing in quite a bit of grain to finish them out. And also, uh, looking at the photo of the lot that you sent over, you don't have a whole lot of natural shade. Uh, you'd have to provide a bunch of supplemental shade. Um, I, I think pigs would kind of struggle on on your particular piece of land the way it looks right now, <clears throat> just because you don't have a whole lot of trees out there except for on one border. Uh, so so now you're bringing in supplemental feed and supplemental shade, and uh, pigs could end up being a whole lot more work uh, than you might realize. You ask about you know using rabbits. You absolutely could use rabbits and, and tractor those around and let them eat some of the grasses, um, but you're not going to keep up with a uh, um, you know a one acre lot just using rabbit tractors I mean you, you literally would have a full-time business selling rabbit meat if you had that many rabbit tractors out there <clears throat> and maybe that's that's one of your goals I don't know but um, I gotta tell you just looking at your situation here and you, there's an animal you didn't mention and maybe it's because you don't like him I don't know and if Nick Ferguson's listening right now he's probably screaming it out loud you really should probably be looking at sheep and or goats that would be a very nice sized uh, grazing animal uh, for your situation on this lot now if you're not interested in sheep and goats that's fine um, but I'm just giving you an alternative that you, you didn't mention uh, as something that would work really well if you like lamb uh, you could easily you know put two or three four lamb out on this piece of ground and rotate them around and um, uh, you know, finish them out really well on just grass. The the problem with doing cows on your lot is you've got to be able to allow that grass to rest at least thirty days once you rotationally graze it every day. So you'd really have to have some very small paddock sizes out there. And I just I just don't know that you could support two cows. Now, one cow uh, that you you didn't mention, and maybe you haven't thought about this, and a whole lot of people don't even know it exists, and it's definitely more of a homesteading cow, kind of like a Dexter. And by the way, a Dexter is a really cool cow. It's a dual breed. But whenever you hear a dual breed, you, you immediately need to realize that that means it doesn't excel at anything. It doesn't excel at milk, and it doesn't excel at meat. It's a dual homesteading breed, which is fine. just want to you know, point that out so that uh, for those who are wanting to raise meat, just know that Dexter is not necessarily one of the best options. There is a cow, if you could find them, they, they are a miniature version, I do mean miniature version, of a Hereford. 
Now, Hereford is the, the red and white-faced uh, cows, and around here, they're a big, you know, frame size four or five. They're monsters. They're huge, but there is a true miniature version out there, and they are actually smaller than our low-line Angus that we use on our farm. So if you could find some of those, they might maybe be small enough that you could, you know, do one or two stalkers out there. The thing about cattle is they're, they're such a herd animal, they really like to have a buddy. So having just one cow... Uh, and look, I'm not a really, you know, super empathetic, touchy-feely kind of guy, but having just one cow is kind of mean because he really does want a buddy. So if you could find a couple of those miniature Herefords that are geared towards meat, you might maybe have a chance. But as far as cattle, that's that's my thought there. Um, I don't think you're going to keep up with rabbits, so I'd, I would really encourage you to think about sheep uh, as a way to keep this mode down. Uh, you could do, you know, one cow and then have a sacrificial area like you mentioned, and feed a bunch of hay, but the thing is, you're going to be feeding a bunch of hay. You're going to be bringing in a bunch of inputs from off farm, and any cow of any size uh, that you know is going to finish out at eight, nine hundred pounds, which is a smaller framed animal, is probably just going to be too big for your lot, uh, and unless your your soil is just years down the road and so super thick and so awesome that you can't even keep up with it with sheep. So those are kind of my thoughts. I, I hope you find that helpful. Um, I don't want to tell you not to do cattle. I just think you're going to be bringing in a whole lot more off-farm inputs than you realize with that limited amount of space. You, if you had, you know, two to three acres, then yes, we could discuss doing this with a cow-calf pair and, and, a, and an animal that's, you know, 12 or 20 to 24 months old that you're finishing out for meat and just kind of finishing off one cow per year to put in your freezer. But you really need more space than you have right now to uh, pull that off, at least with that size animal. So anyway, Rachel, those are my thoughts. Um, if you have more questions, feel free to shoot me an email. We can we can hash that out a little bit. But uh, I think you're on the right track with, with rabbits to at least take care of part of it. But, again, I'd really tell you to think about sheep. Uh, for those of you who uh, would like to learn more about me, you can go out to my website at DarbySimpson.com and check out the free blog articles out there. If you uh, would like, you can sign up for my free blog newsletter. That will uh, just put you on the email list, and anytime I add a new uh, blog article out there, you'll just get a notification that there's something out there. And for those of you that want to know more about upcoming classes that we're going to be doing here in the future, additional workshops, uh, sign up for the blog article as well. I had a gentleman email me this week and and say, man, I wish I would have known about your class. I would have came. How can I uh, be informed about when you're going to do more workshops? Sign up for the blog newsletter, and you will get those notifications. Uh, we're looking forward to putting more of those together in the future. And uh, for those of you who are interested in doing uh, uh, something deeper, I do offer one-on-one -on -one consultations. Um, and uh, it's all tailored to you about your specifics and what you're wanting to accomplish on your piece of ground. And uh, members of the MSB, you do get a 10% discount on those consultation services. Just log in to the uh, TSP. PMSB section and look up the discount code and put that into the form when you're filling it out. Jack, as always, thanks, care, and everyone have a wonderful weekend. You know, we just talked about sheep right before Darby was on, and 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 the the animal that I think would be ideal for your use more so than goats because goats. We had Nick on. Goat, you got to want to do goats to do goats. There's a lot of stuff to doing a goat, and a goat. As Nick said, is not the greatest meat animal. It's like it's, you eat goats when you have nothing else you can do with them because they're a great milk animal and they don't really give you that big of a meat yield and all. And sheep tend to give you a better meat yield. Um, Dorper sheep, I think, would be the case here. 
Dorper sheep don't climb over fences. Goats climb over fences. I mean, that, that, that alone is huge on a small property where they could be getting into other neighbors' pro properties and stuff like that, escaping. Um, and there's a couple ways you could go at it. One would be to just buy a few lambs every year that are weaned. Uh, but, you know, they usually slaughter dorpers at about four months, four to five months on pasture, and they end up being about 80 pounds. Well, this gives you a great summer window. Right, you could you could you could do that. It's going to be somewhat expensive to be buying new stock every year. the The other option would be to have a, a, a couple of ewes and a ram, and and let them drop every year and slaughter off your 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 young lambs. You could even let them go a little. We just talked about how mutton's not the horribly tough, awful thing that people think of, and and mutton is usually considered any any sheep over two years. So you could let them grow a much longer growth cycle and get them up to 120, 130 pounds before slaughter and slaughter before the winter every year and at some point replace your ewes and your ram. Or you could get ewes and have them inseminated by somebody else's ram. Unless you have somebody just down the road from you, that's going to probably be cost prohibitive expensive. But one way or another, they would make a good animal in, in your situation. If I was ever to bring in a ruminant on this property and I've thought about it and it just doesn't make sense for me, But if I was ever to do it, it would be Dorper sheep. There is not a better animal for my systems that I have right now. And who knows, maybe when all the trees are up out of browse range, uh, maybe when more work has been done, maybe we'll look at it again at that point. But right now we're, you know, we're a, we're a bird operation. We're ducks and quails and a couple of geese. Uh, but that's just my thought there. Now, I had an interesting question from somebody last week, actually this week, from my show on uh, on Tuesday, which I, I got incredibly great feedback from, guys. Thank you for uh, all your support in, uh, in letting me know that that show really hit home for a lot of you. And that show was about a long, painful economic and social evolution coming and what we can do during it. And we got into a pretty big discussion about liberty, and then we expanded on that liberty discussion on, on Thursday yesterday because uh, I had a really long day and, and got started late and doing a feedback show. just wasn't going to work. Um, But what I said is that what we need to start doing is practicing what I call practical anarchism. Now, a lot of people think that anarchy is, you know, no rules, no laws, no controls, no whatever, and everybody burning stuff in the streets. And that's not anarchy. That's, that's chaos. Anarchy is no rulers, not no rules. Right? It's, it's self-directed things. It's a, it's a very high moral thing. You're not going to become an anarchist until you're confident enough in your morals to believe that you can police yourself. Um, but what I said is we have to start working outside the, the, the systems. Even if you don't, if you don't believe that, that you can be a minarchist, you can be a libertarian, you can be a, a moderate Republican or Democrat if you want to. I don't agree with your political philosophy. That doesn't mean I won't work with you. Of course I'll work with you. And we still have to work outside the system. We can't work in the education system because the system will not allow us to fix it. We can't work in the political system because the system can't be fixed. The system is the problem. And that prompted a very intelligent question from, from one of you. Uh, someone that's listened to a lot of what I've talked about with permaculture as well. And there's a saying in permaculture, the problem is the solution. And he said, well, if the system is the problem, how does that rate relate to this permaculture system of the problem being the solution? Well, it would be great if it could, but it can't. Now, we can still design our solutions with that in mind. But, but here's the difference. In permaculture, I design the system. I don't 
work in the system. I create. I have the freedom. It's it's interesting that the permaculture's founders seem to both be complete anarchists. Bill Bill Mollison and David Holgram. Holgram is an avowed I am an anarchist. You know, out in the which just caused wailing and gnashing of teeth to all the social justice liberal uh, Democrat t socialist types in the permaculture movement when when Holgram just came out and said I'm an anarchist, and he just blew their minds because they had always used his stuff to shove political agendas down people's throat but of course it is and I, you know even Jeff Lawton uh, has this kind of little bit of an anarchistic flair I remembered him saying I wouldn't mind a little insurrectionist thinking one, at one of his answers to a question or a little bit of sedition here and there might be good it's interesting because that's how the thinking leads you but let's let's look at it from a practical standpoint right so the problem is the solution applied to a chicken so I have a chicken or a group of chickens, so let's say six chickens on my property. And those six, ten, twelve, whatever number of chickens, the problem I have is if I leave them alone, they scratch. They have an innate characteristic. They, they disturb the soil. So if I let them run amok, there are certain places they'll favor, that they'll out and out ruin. There's places they'll ignore, uh, that they won't do the work for me on, and they will get into my garden, eat anything I will, and destroy all of my efforts. They'll pull the ends off of any berm that I make. They're just a problem. The problem is the innate behavior of the, the chicken to disturb soil. So there's a, a lot of different ways I can channel that energy, but let's use one we just talked about uh, with, with Justin yesterday on the show about using chickens in a controlled environment to create compost. So I create for myself a chicken tractor of some sort, some method of confining the chicken, uh, and a mobile coop where I can move the chicken around. Or I just create a coop with several different places, several different yards the chicken can get to, and I don't let the chicken onto the rest of my property. And into each of these yards, I put in uh, a whole bunch of organic matter and old food and waste stuff and things like that. And the chickens eat that. And then they process it into extremely valuable compost, compost that is worth $50 to $80 a, a, a yard. And let's go low end and say they produce $50 worth of compost per uh, cycle. And if I have enough cycles going on, eventually I get to a point where I'm moving them every week. And every week I'm finishing out a yard of compost. So the chicken is now producing a $200 byproduct in compost. Now I can take that and use it to improve the fertility on my land. And the problem has become the solution. Or I have land that I need to increase the value of the pasture. And so now I take the chickens, I put them in tractors or in a paddock shift model, and I just move them around. And basically now they are, they are free-ranging in a small contained space. And I control when the chicken goes where it goes, and I seed behind them. And now again, the problem has come the solution. Okay, this this makes sense. But but see, I'm not going to go into a system with a chicken that's free ranging and has no control over it, and then not change the system. I actually have to change the system. Well, the systems we have. In, in the political space and in, in our current education system and our conflict resolution systems in the courts are designed to not be changed. The systems don't change. You could say whatever you want about the public education system evolving because kids have computers now, but the reality is we run that system the same way we have since the 1860s. 
It is a Prussian model. It is based on producing cogs to go work in machines. It is about producing factory labor in an environment where the, the truly gifted, in spite of your ability to suppress them, will always rise to the top. We'll skim them off. We'll send them to the elite universities. They'll be the managers, the entrepreneurs, and everybody else just becomes a machine piece to plug in somewhere. Okay, And that's, that's the, the economy that that system was created to support. And the economy is evolving away from that, and we're still manufacturing the cog for the machine, but the machine's stopping, ceasing to exist. And, and we've gotten so, so repetitive in that, we're not even making good cogs anymore. We're literally sapping the, 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 the brilliance and the innovation out of our children before they're old enough to know that they could develop it. And, and then, so how do we make the problem the solution? Well, in the system, we can't. See, I can't go into the public education system, tell these people, here's a different way to do things. You know, I can't put any of the problems in front of, of, of administrators or the politicians that run school boards and say, listen, this is what you're doing. Because they won't listen. And even, again, here's what I said earlier this week. Even if I make my case, if I went down to the Tarrant County School Board, completely convinced them that everything that they're doing is wrong for 80% or more of the children, and here's 10 different things we could put right in and do differently and let children choose between one of these now 11 methods because the current system does work for a percentage of our students. There are people that learn absolutely perfectly in you know the classroom, teacher-led environment in that way through the core subjects, etc. Right? But there's all these different kids that you're trying to cram a one-size-fits-all solution into. And let's say they believed me. They could never do it. First thing that would happen is all the parents would go apeshit. Parents wouldn't want this to change. We want our kids to have good test scores so they can get a good college. And, and, and every parent's going to say that bullshit because they've been trained to think that way, even when they have a kid who will never get good test scores. They believe if we just throw more money at the problem, merit pay or better teacher salaries or longer school days or whatever it is or Common Core or get rid of Common Core, if we would just do it better, it would work and their kids' test scores would come up. But see, it's not going to happen. It can't happen. And the system won't let it happen. Here's what I mean. When you test a child's ability to learn and repeat information, you're testing a single capability. So what you're asking then is for me to develop a program that coaches children to run the 100-yard dash and for every child to end up at the end of that program running the 100-yard dash in what we consider a good time, right? This is, a, this is a time that means that this child would be good enough to play professional football or professional basketball because they're fast enough to do that. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that's possible? Do you think there's some people that just can't run fast? Their bodies are built slightly differently. There's people like me. Even when I was a lot thinner, I was never a sprinter. I was the slowest person in, you know, like 50 yards that you ever saw, period. But in, in training, 
when we would go out and we would run distance running in the military, I ran with what they called the fast group. So everybody else is sitting here plugging along at like a nine-minute mile, and we were clipping along at like a seven-minute mile. That was the fast group. You know, sometimes you'd push that last, you might run three miles and push that last mile to six minutes. And I could keep up with those people. But almost everybody in that group was faster than me in a sprint. And almost everybody in the slow group, the standard group, was faster in a sprint than me. I was never a sprinter. Why? I'm Ukrainian, man. I'm short. I'm stocky. I'm built that way. I have big shoulders. I have big legs. I don't have fat legs, trust me. Even when my gut used to be big, my legs are not fat. I have, I have massive muscle in my leg. But it's not designed to be fast and lean. It's designed to push. I develop differently because of my genetics. So I'm not going to be a sprinter. And if you judge me on my ability to sprint, I will fail. And no matter how much training you give me, no matter how much exercise I do, I will never be a sprinter. Okay, that applies to every single skill, whether it's mental or physical, that exists. Every single human being has things that they would be wonderful at and things they're not going to be good at. And some people are not going to be good at math if we're trying to take them to the level of calculus. We have to have good calculus scores. We have to have good algebra scores. No, we don't. The, the majority of Americans don't use any of that shit at all, ever, the end, in their entire professional lives. And they're not going to. So how can I make the problem a solution inside a system that insists that we push everybody through the same path and will not let you do anything to change that path? And when they do, on the very rare occasions they do, the only children that, uh, that will qualify to do things differently are the ones that are already excelling at the existing system. They don't create programs that are completely radically different, self-led study, and let children that are getting D's take that. They say, oh no, this child needs rigid structure. They're already failing. That's the kid that needs the different program. The kid getting the A doesn't need, they might benefit from it. I'm not saying they don't, they don't, they can't benefit, but they don't need it. So I can't make the problem the solution in that system. But let me get out of that system and watch me make the problem the solution. I have a kid. They're doing poorly at mathematics. Why are you doing poorly at mathematics? Define the problem. I don't understand it and I think it's boring. What do you like? I like this. Well, tell me about that. Let's develop a, 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 a coursework around what you do like, what you are excited by, what you do know. And let's just make sure we put some mathematics into it. That kid will excel, and they may not be able to score a really high score on the ACT or the SAT for mathematical. They may not. But they'll learn mathematics. They will be able to function in society very well. They'll be able, possibly, to, to be very good at actual finance and accounting. Because if they like money and they, they understand the rules of business, they, they might, and well, a six-year-old doesn't do that, but they have a predisposition. And if we give them their freedom, their intrinsic characteristics will come out. And if we take people and take their intrinsic characteristics... They're positive intrinsic characteristics. Who determines that? I think a parent would be a good place to start with that, not an administrator that has to treat everybody the same. Okay? Think about that for a second. In our current system of education, 
The teacher is required to treat, treat Johnny and Susie the same. First of all, Johnny and Susie are boys and girls. Now, no matter what the TV tells you, boys and girls are not the same. They're not. Susie is going to have a little, probably a bigger problem if she skins her knee than Johnny. And everybody's going to say, well, I've known girls that are tougher than boys. Yeah. And they're tougher than most of the girls around them, too. So they're not the same as even the girls around them. But Johnny might be a math ace, even at, at like 10 years old, the, the basic math. Or like, he might be able to look at that stuff and just, bam. Susie might be brilliant with history. But we're going to force the two of them to take the same path. And we have to. We have to discipline them the same way under the same rules. We have to give them the same assignments or it's not fair. You don't even treat, if you have more than one kid, you do not treat your two children the same way unless you're a moron. You figure out what works for your kids. You have some kids that are, that are really independent and can do things for themselves and you empower that. And you have some kids that are like, they want you to do everything for them. And you have to work with them to teach them they can do it for themselves. You don't handle those two situations the same, to be fair. The system requires us to do that. So we can always take the problem and make it the solution. But if the system's the problem, we don't have the freedom, the ability, or the possibility even of changing that system, then to make the problem a solution, we have to exit the system. And that's what I've been saying this week very, very forcefully because I think it's time for a lot of you guys that have been with me for a long time to make that leap mentally. That doesn't mean changing anything as far as who you, know, who you vote for. You keep voting if you want to for whoever you want to. I don't care. I really don't. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about taking the step of realizing all this shit that I care about. If I'm actually going to get something done, the best thing I can do is figure out how to get out of the system or work on the system's edge and interact it with as little as possible. Or use the system against itself with what I called last earlier this week, systemic martial arts. Right? You have a court system, and you're going to attack me. Now, the, 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 the only beauty in that is the court system allows me to defend myself. And if you're trying to put me in prison, that's one thing, but if you're trying just to make me stop an action... Well, I can file injunctions and delay court dates. and, and I, There's all kinds of things I can do many times to slow down the process. They do this to you on the other side when they've already taken something from you. They do this to parents all the time when they've taken a parent's kids. When CPS comes in and takes a parent's kids because they let the kid walk down the street alone or something stupid like that because we're morons now. Okay, But if, if you actually are in a place where they can't actually make you quit doing what you're doing or make you leave or make you move, and you're due your day in court before they can enforce that, you can take their tactic and use it to buy yourself enough time to figure out where to move to next or where to go next or how to deal with it next. Without even the intent of winning, right? The, 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 what I learned from Val, I mentioned Val Ryazanov when I was talking about that and how he taught me Russian martial arts. The other thing I learned from him is very, very important in dealing with the system is he said, if you go into a fight with the intent to win, if your goal is to win, you will lose more often than you win. You, I know it sounds crazy, but you will. He said, when because th this is a guy that trained with the Russian Olympic team, okay? The Russian Olympians were trained that their first and primary thing that they were supposed to do so that they could win was they trained and competed with the intention of surviving. 
especially in combative arts like 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 judo, which is what where Verval was. So if I can survive in the match long enough, sooner or later my opponent makes a mistake, and now I can win. We need to understand that. And that's where we interact with the system. We need to start thinking instead of just trying to, to beat the opponent, how do we survive? How do we coexist? How do we prove it can be done? How do we buy ourselves time? How do we get left alone? How do we get enough momentum that something's going on something that even when the system decides it wants to stop it, it's too late, they can't? So that we do like the, the guy I talked about that started cutting the curbs in Arizona. And by the time the city caught on to what he was doing, there was trees growing everywhere. People liked it. It was like, we can't do this. Or Ron Finley, that did the guerrilla gardening thing in Los Angeles, and they kept telling him to stop, and he just kept doing it. He just did it somewhere else. He survived long enough that the community said, hey, 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 no more of this. You're not ripping that out. Don't you people have something else to do? And when enough of people felt that way, we got to change. And what you'll say to me is, well, Jack... Those two changes happened in the political system that you say we should work outside of. They did, they did, they did, they did. But do you know what? The people that caused the change didn't work in the system. Ron Finley didn't go down to town council meetings and, or the city council and beg the L.A. politicians to plant a garden. He just did it. The guy, I can't think of his name now, that Jeff Lawton put out, that cut the curbs. He just did it. He didn't do it in the system. Their actions were outside of the system. They were forms of civil disobedience that were significantly low enough that nobody went to jail because you don't want to go to jail. You can't fight an insurrection from a jail. But they were sufficiently effective, sufficiently effective, and done strategically to the point where they caused the system to change itself. Because... That's the thing. You're worried that if you exit the system, you won't be in it to vote for whatever you want or, or some kind of nonsense. Your vote doesn't matter. The key is to get enough people pissed off that want change so that they change the system for you. When I need a job done on my property that I don't have time to do, I leverage financial capital. I say, hey, John, come on over here and do this job for me. And I give him money and he does it. I don't do it myself. I use leverage. Okay? When, when I see somebody being attacked and I want them to be helped and I don't have enough financial capital to do it individually, then I leverage my social capital. I come to you and say, here's the story. If you agree with me that this is wrong, let's go help this person. And there's times we've done it and we've really made a difference. We didn't do it through going to government and begging them for shit. We just did it. We just did it. The best thing you can do to make political change is embarrass the system. Make the system look so freaking incompetent and so freaking stupid and so ridiculous that even the status that's in that system says, I, I don't want you to do that anymore. And when enough people tell the politician they don't want them to do that anymore, then they, they do make change. Political change does happen, but it doesn't happen in the system. It's always people that break the rules, if not the law, that actually initiate the change, that change the mind of the people in the system, that change the minds of the people participating in the system. The problem is the solution. The problem is the mentality of the people. So that's what we have to do is change their mentality. But it always gets done outside. Give me a person that affected great change in the world, and I bet you they did it outside of the system. 
the true, especially when they didn't have money or they didn't have extreme political influence. Right? There's people that because of their, who they are, who they were born to, or because they had lots of money, they got political power, or because they have a lot of money, they buy political power, that can make huge changes. Guess what? That's not you, or you wouldn't listen to me. And you're never going to be one of those people. The common man, the Ron Finleys of the world, that make change break the freaking rules, and they change the problem into the solution outside of the system where it's not working. To where the people in the system start looking over because the grass is greener. The grass is greener. If I go make your yard greener, you'll tell me it's not greener. Unless it was brown and now it's bright green. If I make it two shades greener, just a, a little bit greener, 10% greener than it was, and say, now that I've done that for you, I would like you to give me a couple hundred bucks. You'll say, my grass was always great. There's nothing wrong with it. Ah, but if I take the yard next door and I make it a, you know 10% greener, You'll beg me to come do it to yours. How do I get that done? I leave your yard. How do I prove that my version of education is better? I produce children that kick the ass of the kids in the system. And that's what the homeschoolers are doing right now. Homeschoolers are kicking the public institution's ass on every measurable level. Even they're going outside of the system, they're doing things unconventionally, they're ignoring certain subjects for times until the kid's ready for it, and their kids still come back and they kick the ass of public education in every measurable way because they exited the system. How, how much longer do you think that's going to go on before the grass starts to look greener? Before parents start just saying, because the only reason the parents aren't doing it now, we don't know what to do with our kids. I, I got to work. Don't you think we can solve that problem? Don't you think we can solve those problems? I do. But we won't solve it in the system. We have to get out of the system. We have to fight the system by exiting the system and continuing to do the right things anyway. Because what all of the proponents of statist control say is human beings can't exist without this monstrosity above them to make sure they do the right thing. But when you walk away and do the right, right thing because it's the right thing, in fact, you do it better, it starts to embarrass them. Again, as always, when I talk like this, this is seventh generational thinking. A lot of great things can happen before we all take a dirt nap. But what I'm worried about is the baton that I pass to my son, and I'm worried about the baton that he passes to his son, and my great-grandson that I'll probably never know. That's what I'm worried about. And I'm worried about doing the right thing for the right reasons, period. I, I, I rail against the state because I believe theft is wrong, and I don't think you can legitimize it with a badge. I don't think you can legitimize it with a title. I don't think you can le legitimize it with an election. So I will not participate in their system any longer. Instead, I want to do a better job, and I want to make the case that we don't need a system of controls. We need a system of liberties. Uh, today I'm ending the show with a song called Working Class Hero by John Lennon. 
Uh, I'm going to give you a, a little bit about this song. This is a, a song about being controlled, and it fits very well with their you know, closing uh, segment today. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning. Uh, John chose to use the F word a couple times in this song, and I'm going to play it anyway, even though I generally don't say that on the air, uh, because I think that it is perfectly suitable for the artistic creation that he's doing here. I don't think another word would have fit in these two spots. But if you don't want to hear it, don't listen to it. And it, more I'm saying it in case you have it playing somewhere where you really don't want that heard, uh, especially as you're going to exit music and wouldn't expect it. So uh, Working Class Hero by John Lennon. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small By giving you no time instead of it all Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all A working class hero is something to be Working class hero is something to be They hurt you at home and they hit you at school They hate you if you're clever and they despise a fool Till you're so fucking crazy you can't follow their rules Working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be When they've tortured and scared you for twenty odd years Then they expect you to pick a career When you can't really function, you're so full of fear A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Keep you doped with religion and sex and TV You think you're so clever and classless and free But you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be room at the top they are telling you still But first you must learn how to smile as you kill If you want to be like the folks on the hill A working class hero is something to be 
last hero is something to be If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me